Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is waywhatpodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I are here to answer 24 questions in 230 minutes. Yes, it is time for the patrons of Patreon to ask us anything their hearts desire. Questions are asked about topics like waffles, Jim Starlin, King City, my beard, what books to read for the upcoming Daredevil series, why doomsayers about comics are always wrong, who is the Amanda Palmer of comics, and much, much more. Peppy show notes of all the questions are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan! How the devil are you doing, sir? You know, it's it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough thing to answer, which is ironic, oh, wow. considering Why? the nature of this podcast today. Uh, honestly, on the one hand, I want to say that I'm not doing too bad. On the other hand, it's weirdly, strangely hot here, and, um... Uh, there's just been like really weird technical problems popping up around the house in like the most utterly random way. So, hooray! I know, I, right? I thought that's going so well. Yes, me too. Me uh, too. You made a reference to what this podcast is, and so I should let the listeners know. Um, we, when we launched the Patreon and when we relaunched the podcast nine months ago, said that we would do um, question and answer podcasts for our Patreon supporters. Mm-hmm. And then for the next nine months, didn't. Yeah, but, but Graham, okay, <laughs> you and I are of two different things on this. The idea was it depended at the what level they contributed at. No, I, I, I know. I'm just saying there are people contributing at all levels apart from truly outrageous, or as we call it, the gem level. Um, (laughs) And nine months in, I thought it would be a good idea to actually finally ask some of our Patreon supporters for questions. Okay. My initial plan had actually been to ask our Patreon supporters and then ask everyone else via Twitter and Tumblr. But we got so many good questions from our Patreon supporters that it would have just been a bad idea to ask everyone else because we know we wouldn't have gotten to it. Yes, yes. Um, so yes, this is a sort of a special Patreon episode. That's right. That's right. Um, for people who are like, I would have liked to ask a question. We'll do other question and answer episodes in the future. Or you could sign up for our Patreon and know about things that, that happen if you're not already on that. Uh, that's patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast. Yes. Exactly. Look if at me. Sh- I'm, I'm flipping it around this week. I, I know. I know. Totally great. And like, I feel like you should almost tell them where to find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and... Uh... Well, on Tumblr, we're waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. And mm-hmm. on Twitter, we're at waitwhatpodcast. I am at Graham M. G-R-A-E-M-E-M. I always forget my this special letter at the end. <laughs> and Jeff is at LazyBastid. That's right. L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also find her on Stitches and iTunes, but I'm sure you know that if you're actually listening to this. If you're listening now, you found us somehow. So Yes, yeah. and we're so glad you did. Oh, I should also say, if you are only listening on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, we also have a podcast at waitwhatpodcasts.com where mm-hmm. we do written posts as well. That's right. Which and I that really is everything on. we do at the end, at the start. Yes, me. well done. Well done. In I mean... a bizarro podcast. <laughs> 
indeed. Uh, okay, so should we dive right into the – I think we should dive right into the questions. And then if we have time, of course, I really wanted to talk about Ultra Comics because there are a few things that I thought were just – Multiversity, sorry, Ultra Comics, number one. Because I thought there were some things that were just really just clever and also a few things that I, I – um, I'm just not – down, I'm just not on Twitter enough to know if other people like picked up on this or talked about it. But there's a lot of stuff going on there that I thought was. Oh, there's super there's a fun. lot of stuff. Yes, yeah. let's do questions. How do you want to do questions? Uh, I should also, because I'm giving back search this. There are people who uh, there are Patreon supporters who suggested that we read specific comics, which is something else we offered in our Patreon, and we've had real trouble finding the comics. Yeah. So we gave them heads up uh, on questions first. And they sent uh, Eric in particular sent a bunch of questions. Do you want to do all of Eric's questions and then do other people's? Do you want to do and like an Eric and then a non-Eric and then an Eric and then a non-Eric? How do you want to do this? Let's plow through it. Uh, some of the some of my answers, at least for Eric's stuff, I think might. I don't know if they're going to like. There's one or two of them that I'm like, eh, I've got two words for it, and then there's oh, yeah, another yeah. one where I, I've got I'm, a yeah, lot. I'm the same. Yeah. So, so let's just let's just plow through it. I think in the order submitted because I think that seems pretty fairish, right? Okay. Uh, well, Eric Roop is first up with mm-hmm. a handful of questions. His first question is: With the years of dire predictions for the direct market and some of the major publishers therein on the podcast and otherwhere, and by many people not on the podcast, why have none of them ever really come true? A truly captive audience, lack of better options for various players in the market, however you choose to define that, or something else. It's a good question. Did you want to start, Graham, or should I start? Uh, you could start, because if I started, I, I would say that I think it really is a truly captive audience. Okay. At so, this point. But okay. but what about you? You know, uh, I I think that there are there are well okay first off there is the captive audience the captive audience I think is a is an important factor um, I think and interestingly enough I realize how part one part of this comes in with actually one of uh, Eric's I think um, later questions but uh, there's a captive audience but the captive audience itself tends to uh, go through periods of, yeah, dilation, you know. So current, you know, the thing that is also remarkable, you know, sort of the weird thing that, you know, in true superhero comics fashion, somebody's greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. The direct market is an incredibly good mechanism for allowing publishers um, to publish comics because unlike the book market, which is built on returnability, the direct market is even now with a few experiments being done by returnability that, that that's finally started to change in the last few years has been almost exclusively um, a non-returnable market, which means that, that it can't really grow. Uh, well, well, it what can, I was, but not not organically. Well, what I was going to say is is that it can be supported at at numbers that do not seem exceptionally big. You know, uh, as, as some of the people were saying, actually, uh, some of the 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 current wave of image writers um, were saying when they were talking about their books, something like 
40,000, 30,000 copies uh, of, of an image book is incredibly profitable for them. Not as much for, you know, something, somebody like Marvel or DC because there's so many middlemen in there. But the fact is, is that, um, you know, some, somebody like Marvel and DC are still probably making money at 15,000 copies or more. And that is technically kind of a very smallish number, you know. Consequently, that allows um, very big money companies like Marvel and DC um, to to actually continue to produce, like solicit comics, sell them to the retailers who then sell them to the rest of the marketplace and not have to worry about returns or any of those other things that other publishers have traditionally had to worry about on the newsstand or in bookstores. It's a, mm-hmm. it's hugely an efficient cycle. Again, that's the strength. The weakness that's built in is exactly as you said, that it, it makes it very, very difficult for them to grow because the, the nature of that capitalism means that comic book stores tend to, you know, only invest in the hits as the numbers of stores shrink or as readers diminish the retailers as their orders go down, they have less money to actually experiment with, you know, with bookstores and newsstands being able to order stuff on a returnable prod, uh, basis meant that they're what they had the wiggle room to experiment and try and introduce more variety. So I'm not disagreeing with you, but I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean then when, as with the new 52s launch and the, the post-convergence DC books in June, mm-hmm. DC does make its books fully returnable? Mm-hmm. Well, Why don't we see... I mean, I guess with new 52, we did see significant jumps in, in order numbers. Yes. But I guess, is it that the market as set up does not support that not only from the retailer level, but also from the reader level. I guess what I'm saying is why didn't those numbers stay up? Uh, well, it depends on who you talk to. If you, I think that someone like Brian Hibbs would say that the product was not very good, you know, that Mm -hmm. the new 52 was rushed to market and that the books were rushed and there was not a, there wasn't a grand unifying plan and B, there were too many books that were rolled out too quickly. Now, when it's returnable, you can actually have super high orders for 52 books because the retailers are spreading themselves in theory somewhat thin, but they're covered by returnability. But once those numbers, once they actually see what's happening in the marketplace, and in the case of the marketplace, there were too many titles and a lot of them were not particularly exceptional, you got the, the contraction that you did. Mm-hmm. Is, is what I think. So mm-hmm. hopefully the difference, uh, you know, the thing that really sucks is I feel that Marvel and DC, uh, whether intentionally or, or not, are cock blocking each other in ridiculous fashions with secret wars and convergence. They each have their own forms of how they prefer to do um, cover their bases. You know, Marvel's doing deeper, deeper discounts for higher orders. And actually the very recent, um, most recent tilting at windmills over at comic book resources by Brian Hibbs, uh, talk lays all this out in actually great detail, at least in terms of the approaches to it. Um, and you know, 
like him, I tend to prefer DC's approach of for full returnability as opposed to heavier discounts. But if the retailer, in, you know, after the returnability window ends, has to start making choices about what DC books to buy and the and they can't get a strong hold on the numbers because everyone is busy buying, you know, Marvel books or limited series or the consumers themselves are spread too thin. It even if those books are much better planned, much better designed to appeal to the market, they still may not have a very they may not have as much of a chance to stick. And so DC may see a, a more of a a problem uh, that they did with the new 52. Do you, does that make sense? Do you think? No, no, I, I completely understand. It's, it's, and not to take us horrifically off topic, but you know, that's what we do. Um, <laughs> I said this on Twitter uh, today and I've said it in the past on Twitter as well. I can't believe the number of fucking, uh, Secret Wars books that are. Yeah. I, mean, I, I cannot, I cannot believe that we're still getting announcements. So I, I'm, I'm staggered by it because it's, it honestly feels like, Marvel looked to convergence and we're like, oh no 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 no, we could do that much bigger and much longer. Yeah. Or alternately, they looked at Flashpoint and thought, what if we make that our entire line? Yeah, I there's I think there's a number of factors that are going on there, but for for me, I I being a you know uh, of an age that that is given easily to conspiratorial the- theories. Back in the 80s, when First Comics and Eclipse Comics uh, had were making their way into the shops and developing a hold in the marketplace, uh, was around the time that Marvel suddenly started doing a ton of high-quality reprints on Baxter paper of famous... Of everything. Favorite, of everything. Yeah. Exactly. Of everything. And... I think it wouldn't surprise me if it was if, if I read it at first with at like Cat Ironwood at Eclipse. I also want to say that maybe Sean Howe repeated this too. Um, it was a it was a theory of some at least that what Marvel was trying to do was flood the market was basically to keep enough spaces on the rack or keep enough product to keep the direct retailers. Um, Money tied up that that they net that there was never a place for Eclipse or First or anyone to get a, a solid or substantial enough holding. Um, so yeah, it would not surprise me if Marvel is kind of a, you know, it, it may have started with something just as simple as you know what we're going to take back September. You know, like we're just going to make sure. Oh, yeah, that they, we... they definitely started doing that last year. Yeah, last year was quite clearly there. Yeah, we've we've got to we've got to beat DC in December. Yeah, and and, and so I think now it's like super super that that's like no 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 fooling around. We're really going to do this now, and if it means like just literally throwing everything at the wall, um, it's it's crazy to look at it though because uh-huh. I mean we're. We're coming up on 50 books. Yeah. 50 books. Good. Um, and let's not forget, that's just the the new titles. Like right. The other titles are still continuing. It's yeah. not even like the new 52, where it's the entire line. Yeah. Um, and the strange thing is, there are there are books in there that I, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
seeing Alan Davis and Al Ewing team up again for uh, Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders. Mm-hmm. That, that's great. But I am finding myself, my I, with every new announcement, yeah. my apathy for the whole thing increases. Yes, exactly. To the point where I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd love Captain Britain and Mighty Defenders. However... Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of fuck Secret Wars, right? Well, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's so weird. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I, and I wonder if this is uh, what all the non DC fanboys felt when Convergence was announced, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is similarly like here's forty fucking books, right? Um, but it's I don't know for some reason it, like I'm I'm exhausted by it in a way that I'm I wasn't exhausted by Convergence in part because Convergence always seemed like a two month villain that you could just skip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that I think that Marvel is and I, actually you know I hadn't considered it in the context of Flashpoint, but maybe it's true. Maybe they looked at maybe the bottom line for those Flashpoint titles as weird as some of them were and as kind of unimpressive as in their sales. They were like, you know what? This is great, you know. And and both both I, companies I, I were like, can't... let's replicate this. Let's yeah, let's well, let's do this God. better. That's that's sad. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, okay, let's go on to Eric's other question. Yes. Or one of ours. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If Diamonds put the previous catalog together in a more egalitarian manner such as getting rid of the Premier Publisher section and listing all publishers alphabetically or doing a rotating spotlight, do you think that that would lead to an increase in sales for non-Premier Publishers? Uh, Let's first of all explain for people who don't know what this is about. Nice. So uh, Diamond's preview catalogue is literally the order form for what is coming out three months from now. And it is laid out in terms of the Premier Publishers are at the front and get significant sections uh they get full page uh art for the majority of their titles or half page art perhaps mm-hmm. um and the non-premier publishers which makes up 99 percent of the publishers there, there are five premier publishers mm-hmm. uh there's marvel there's dc there's dark horse there's image and there's idw um and ev- everyone else goes in the, the back of the catalog yeah. and as a result the back of the catalog is crazily overwhelming Yes. And for many stores, not something that they really dig into. Yeah. Uh, so to, with that out of the way, I think the idea of getting rid of the Premier Publisher section is great in theory. Mm-hmm. But as someone who used to read previews every month, and you did the same. Yes, we exactly. Both, we, we both, both used did to do, this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Comics Experience newsletter. Um, the, Putting all publishers alphabetically would, I think, not help anything because the back half is, is horrifically overwhelming and confusing. Yeah. I mean, the, the sad fact of the matter, I, part of it is is like kind of it's that weird historic like, oh, yeah, but that's never going to happen kind of thing. Like it's very hard for me knowing the history to be kind of like, yeah, that's that's never really going to happen. Like, you know, because of the deals that the, the publisher signed with diamond during the sure, times sure. of the, the yeah, but we're, we're in, we're in the, you know, what if stage. Sure. Though. But heavily in the, what if stage, the, the, the sad fact of the matter is, is that those premier publishers, as Graham says, 90% of the, the market of uh, the 90% of the publishers you know, just by volume, are in the back half of the of the 
catalog, but 90 to 95% of the sales is in that front section. And the idea that I wish it's, I just don't think, unfortunately, that it's as much of a cause and effect. I think that a lot of stores are trained now that DC and Marvel uh, do like wherever they are in the catalog, like, Publisher, you know, retailers will come up with a way to get to them. They'll come, they'll get to those five that they need. And that includes ripping those pages right out of the catalog and throwing well, the rest of it. To be utterly cynical, mm-hmm. and why not? I'm utterly cynical. Yes. If Simon decided to get rid of the premier section, I think more publishers would do what Marvel does, which is release a, se- a separate catalog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and, and I, and I think that's, I think that's probably true. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I I really think that there are a lot of problems. Like, honestly, I'm so glad that Eric asked us about the previews catalog as opposed to Diamond altogether. But, um, I, you know, I honestly think that uh, it, it at this point, the way everything is entrenched, I don't think that it would change much, um, sadly. So. Well, okay, let's answer the specific question asked. Yes. Which okay. is, do you think it would lead to an increase in sales for non-premier publishers? I think it would lead to a small bump, but like a tiny bump. Yeah, I would I would say that it is a super, super, super small I, I th- bump. Yeah. But I think there would be a bump. Uh, I mean, sure. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yes. But I, but I mean, I really mean negligible. Yeah, exactly. Part of me mean, is like, like... I think sales would go up, but not so much as anyone would notice. Well, yeah. I mean, because frankly, because there are 99 other publishers, I don't think... I think I think that I could see the sales changing, say, 2%. Maybe even a crazy world that changes by 8%. That 8%, let's assume, gets moved equally across the other 90 publishers you know for some of them that might mean like oh i get a chance to do this for you know two years in a row or three years in a row or whatever but i think for others um looking at the companies that have come out that that get coverage uh after the premier publishers lock the book um it seems like getting well-known talent, but especially getting licenses that have high recognition do more for getting pub, uh, publishers noticed, I think. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, you just have to look at uh, IDW and Boom and Dynamite. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All of those guys played the licensed game, are trying and, to figure and it out. worked out for them. Exactly. So there's a lot of people for whom it doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I know there's, there's, I know there are, people out there who would argue that it's not actually working as well as oh uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, as well as it seems yes shall we say. exactly exactly but but it is a way that's around it and i do think that that becomes that becomes a bit of a factor you know and who knows if it becomes egalitarian for you know what i mean if all of a sudden 90 percent of the publishers change their name to a you know what i mean like i think it, yeah I think that, it, that would be hilarious mm-hmm yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, but again, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so okay. let's let's move on since it was yes. a hypothetical. Next question. I think this might be one where we both answer super quickly. Yes. Uh, which is the most more important decade for superhero comics, the sixties or the nineties? Sixties. 
sixties. Yeah, I, I like when I looked at that question, I was like, I don't get how you make an argument that the nineties was actually a really important decade for superhero comics. Well, uh, I mean, you get image, I guess. You you get image, and you also get the comic book implosion, which honestly had more to do with speculation and money but, coming in from the trading sure, card companies. Not, but I get. Uh, okay, I'll rephrase that. I don't see how you get to make an argument that it's as important as the 60s. Yes. No, no, no. Exactly. There's a bunch of stuff, but I mean, Eric, the, the, un, until the 60s, comic books were a cyclical market. Um, you know, everything, there, there was a superhero cycle, then there was a romance cycle, a horror cycle, a Western cycle, a licensed comic cycle, and it went through those cycles several times, usually in a very short period of time. The 60s for superhero comics has to be the most important decade yeah, it's, because... it's the decade where, where they took over. It's also the decade where, thanks to Kirby and Lee, predominantly Kirby, Mm-hmm. The visual language of superhero comics, as we know them, yeah, was invented. Mm-hmm. Um, the sixties are are it. <laughs> like any argument you can make for the nineties, I feel you could equally make for the sixties, with the exception of the implosion. You're right, exactly, and, and especially and, in an artistic, uh, you know, in terms of artistic importance, yeah. I think that it's just so much stronger for the night for the sixties. Yeah. Uh, he also asks, "What do you think the most important decade for comics general?" I don't know if he understand if he's quite asking, "Are the sixties and nineties more important for comics in general, or what decade in general is more important for comics in general?" Well, yeah, I think that's what he means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, say, oh, I see what you're saying. Sixties and nineties. Right. I'm choosing nineties for comics 90s. in general. Yes. Yeah. Because you get the the independent. Uh, well, see, you. Get I guess the, that's kind of eighties. See, that's it. To me, the eighties really become a huge chunk of uh, of 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 where stuff starts. You know, for the independents. I mean, you've got the undergrounds in the sixties and a bit of the seventies, but they've collapsed by the end of the seventies. You get a small amount with Star Reach of what Eclipse and First uh, and other companies uh, started doing, and especially, you know. In the 70s, but the 80s is where you see a mini ascendance of Fanagraphics, Cerebus, like ElfQuest. There's a variety of other titles and there's and a lot more besides, like things that are still continuing to this day, I guess. In yeah. And you also get the, the, the creation of the direct market, which is a very important. Yeah. Uh, beast. Yeah, Yeah. I I think you could actually make an argument that the 80s is really up there. Yeah. Because you also get the superhero crossover coming out of that decade, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. then, you know, went on to dominate superhero comics. I I mean, I would have to check the... I would have to check... I mean, certainly comic book stores coming into ascendance in the 80s, but I think they might have started in the 70s, but... Yeah, I I mean... The direct market as we know it... uh, Maybe it was super late 70s? I think it was super late 70s. I, I don't know. I think we'd have to check, and I wish I had my even my Kindle nearby so I could double check the the fun facts for uh, out of Marvel: The Untold Story. But um, yeah, it's it, it's it's very close. Late seventies, early eighties, I think is a super is is a super important time for indie wow. comics. Wikipedia says it's the early seventies. Yeah, see, because that's it. It's it's very much. It's Phil Suling comes up with yeah. this idea, and that's what that. That essentially is what allows the first few all comic comic stores to happen. Like, um, like I was reading in this profile, this like fun fact answering 
you know, period about George Lucas. It was about George Lucas and some of the influences on Star Wars. Oh, it was it was the guy who was who wrote the whole column talking about how he sold the licensing rights to Marvel, sold Marvel on licensing the Star Wars comic. And one of the things that he mentioned that I did not know is that George Lucas was um, a silent partner in Super Snipe, which was the largest uh, comic book store and collector of comic book art back in like 1974. So. There were very few people in there in the early 70s. It's just the 80s is where all these things sort of – the things started in the 70s really matured in the 80s though, I yeah. think. So so let's let's just say we're going to stay somewhere between the 70s, 80s, and 90s. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's such, a, it's such a sliding scale. The 80s in terms of ascendance, I mean there's a lot of people – like it's that thing of like back when people would say like – you know, what was it? 86 was the most important year for comics with Mouse and Dark Knight and Watchmen all establishing a quote unquote beachhead. But of course, mm-hmm. other people point out there was nothing to follow up that beachhead. So it kind of eroded and it actually took, you know, another 10 years, 15 years. Yeah, exactly. It, it took almost another generation to actually have something that they could. Yeah. act as a, And then you read this. Yeah, I would say there's a very good case. 40 or 50 years down the line or even 30 years down the line where for the most important decade for comics in general is going to be considered the, the first decade of, of the 21st century. You know? The first decade? Really? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Because to me, the, you get, what happens is you get um, the manga boom and at the same time enough of the product from the 90s getting collected and into bookstores that bookstores begin having a you know a graphic novel section and additionally you start getting the people who grew up as fans of sort of the same way that people who grew up as fans of superhero comics end up hitting hollywood in the 90s and early 2000s uh, well, the 90s. I feel that the people who grew up reading indie comics in the 80s end up being seated in the media enough that you start getting bookstore reviews, NPR reviews. You start getting more and more stuff about comics that start driving the quote-unquote average citizen into comic book stores. And if those comic book stores, something like Comics Experience is well prepared enough you end up getting you know reoccurring casual buyers which i think the comic book stores were lacking desperately in the 90s you know so that's my theory is is that 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 essentially the it's the 2000s that end are going to end up being the most important decade for quote-unquote comics overall okay shall we do the next question we shall uh, and this is a great one. I'll read this yeah, one I, because... The, oh, I, I was going to say, I should read this because I feel this is such a Jeff question. Maybe that's why I wanted to read it so I can dodge it. Okay, <laughs> okay you read on it. you go. Read. Uh, uh, are the intentions of the editors and writers on recent outreach titles like Captain America, Ms. Marvel, Thor, and Captain Marvel 
comprised, and I think he meant compromised, by the fact that Marvel as a company is horrible when it comes to things like ethics, morals, and general human decency. Does the larger cultural situation with a general lack of diversity in things like blockbuster movies and the fact that most companies are just as bad, if not worse than Marvel, on an ethical level matter? Or is it simply a matter of giving one set of values priority over another? Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I should just say yes. Uh, I feel that it's different for everyone. People are going to definitely, when I felt horrible about the thing with Marvel, a lot of people pointed out that DC was doing terrible things to its freelancing community at exactly the same time. Uh, well, and again... There are other companies that are still doing terrible things to their freelancing communities, uh, but not paying them as well as either Marvel or DC. Frankly, I've I've heard reports that frankly Marvel does not pay especially well. This may have turned around. No, I I have I have heard similar. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So my thing is, is there was there was a stage where (laughs) between the ending of of the Levitt era DC and the fruition of the Casada Jameis era at Marvel, but really it was the, the, I feel the, the, the micromanaging hand of Ike Perlmutter uh, above all and Marvel's side that led to what I thought were some very uh, appalling lack of um, basic human decency. <laughs> yeah. Between the two. And it, it made me uncomfortable. I mean, I feel I will, I will, if all things, I, I've hated the three times in my life where I've passed on Huffington Post links, you know, because for me, when Ariana Huffington decided not, once they they got funded that they weren't going to pay their writers, people who'd invested a lot of time and that people were doing it for exposure, I feel that damaged an enormous amount of the internet and, and made really... It- Yes, it's no. It's just funny that you're saying that because when you when you started by like it's it's an individual thing, everyone decides. When you're like passing on Huffington Post links, I had saw myself being like, Jeff, why would you do that? Well, like in, I said, Graham, yeah, exactly. Like I, it it with a uh, an intensity and a passion I don't feel towards Marvel. Or towards DC Marvel, exactly, or, or anything else. Yeah, everybody because, does have you a know, thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very personal thing, but also like it directly impacts my livelihood. Yes. Well, uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, Graham. I hope you know that I said, like, literally, I've maybe done it at oh, no, tops, no, no, like, yeah, five I times like, in my yeah, entire life. I feel like, life. Jeff, this yeah, podcast yeah. is over. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, great. But, it, no, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the – I feel like I am now illustrating your point. Yeah. That I am uh, – I'm, I'm conscious mm-hmm. of the incredibly shitty business practices of Marvel and DC and – as I will say again, other publishers. Mm-hmm. I'm not singling only Marvel and DC out here. Um, and yet, I find it easier to put that into a little box called, eh, deal with it later, right. than I do, you know, uh, Huffington Post or or the one that really hurt was um, Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Entertainment oh, yeah. Weekly was like, ah, we, we're going to do the same thing as Huffington Post. Yeah. I, I remember feeling very angry yeah. and very betrayed. So, so, I think it is simply a matter of giving one set of values priority over another. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds horrible. It sounds callous as shit. But I think I think we all do it. 
I think we all have to. I mean, because I think there's a certain degree to which, I mean, otherwise you're never quite sure where that level ends. But I mean, you know, I mean, some people like, you know, it's like, I care enough about the environment that it was super important to me, you know, when I bought my first new car ever that I got a hybrid. Someone uh, may look at that and say that's admirable. Somebody who only rides their bike and takes public transport exactly. everywhere. Like, why are you buying a car? Exactly. Like, don't you know how many raw and irreplaceable materials and how many years and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, there is modern... If you're hooked into a specific form of modern life, there is a ridiculous amount of value priority swapping, and you you take the things that you know matter to you. I guess yeah, you know. I, I, I mean, for example, I'm talking on a MacBook, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah. I, I use Apple products. Yeah, I, well, I would make the argument that Apple is much worse than either Marvel and TC. See, and this is this depends on where you go because on the one hand, there's part of me that agrees, but he, here's also part of my point is I I think that even in acknowledging a matter of giving one set of values priority over another, I think there's a lot to be said for making a stand and, and, and talking about those values. I mean, it may end up like having people like roll their eyes and, and call you a hypocrite or not. Um, <laughs> but how, how is that bitterness therapy going, Jeff? I, I, I feel okay with it. It's, okay, it's it. like a constant low rumble. It keeps me warm at night. I don't have to worry about a hot water bottle anymore. Um, but, but also, so like for me, cause I had people who were like, how can you boycott Marvel and use Apple products? And I'm like, as far as I can tell, I can actually force Apple to do something. You <laughs> so know like, what I mean? Yeah, it's working out quite well. Well, no, but I mean, like, <laughs> it, it, there is a lot to be said for the fact that Apple, frankly, when pressed on the shit with Foxconn, made noises. And then when they were pressed about it further, they actually stepped forward in terms of the amount of investigating they did. As far as I can recall, and it could be wrong, I believe that people then pointed out that they weren't releasing the results of their investigations or they weren't allowing independent auditors on site. Apple agreed to do that. Now, Apple's not a great company. Why did it do that? It did that stuff because people objected and raised a stink and there were petitions and and basically we're humorless heridians on the internet there's also part of me that's like you know what i don't think i don't know that you know marvel has been better about throwing money to bill mantlow about giving their creators credit you know jim starlin went from not even being told that thanos was in the avengers to you know, being flown out for, for the Guardians of the Galaxy premiere now. Well, and also he's now a consultant on the Captain Marvel movie, right? So you have a, you have a situation. I didn't know that, by the way. That's awesome. You have situations where I don't think that I think that Marvel was kind of like it takes very little to look like they're doing the right thing, and in some cases where it takes a lot, you know, like in the situation of the Kirby ownership case, that only happened. Because people, because the lawsuit was filed, but honestly, people talking about it on the internet to the point where you have a legal consultant, Jeff Trexler, over at the beat talking about this stuff, 
because people are interested and it's a way of fomenting dissent. And for all we know, his, his legal, his, the only decent legal theory he was able to come up with suddenly popped up in the middle of the briefing against Marvel. And then, and then there's a deal. Now we can look at for a Jack Kirby super edition slipcase that will cost more money than God, but some of that money will be going to the Kirby family. And so part of me feels like those values can make a difference. On the other hand, that paper is probably still being printed on trees from, you know, short shorn Amazon rainforests that are being, you know, hammered into pulp with toxic chemicals that are poisoning the rivers and children, you know, living around it. So it's, it's just an ongoing process, I think. To go back to what he started asking. <laughs> no, no, no. Cause I think you're address- totally addressing his larger question. Okay. He asked a different question at the start, which yes. is, are the good intentions of the editors undercut by Marvel's general business practices? I, 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 don't, I don't think they are, to be I, honest. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, it depends on what you mean. I mean, I, to me, it's kind of like in the sense of support, like it's, you know, it, I, I don't know if Eric's, Eric's phrasing it very discreetly, but it, you know, if he's saying like, in other words, is it better to buy Ms. Marvel, um, when it's being published by Marvel at its worst, knowing that Ms. Marvel can actually make changes in terms of the makeup of, you know, the comic book industry and the ability of women and people of color to see themselves represented in popular media. It's, it's a tough call. I, I, I really am glad that Eric threw the giving one set of values priority over another is, is where as a, as a get out of jail free card for us. Because I, because that's the one we're taking. It will be, yeah, because there is a way where it's like, I was not buying Ms. Marvel. There was a lot of titles that I sat there and was like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm not fucking buying that. You know? Um, it's because you hate women. <laughs> Moving on. The next question. Yeah, let's move on there. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> is Image's current success based around Eric Stevenson? And if so, do you think that continued success is possible if Stevenson left the company? No, also, do you think Image yes. will continue to evolve its Jeff, oh, do you think Image will be able to continue with its current publishing strategies, or will the founders want to reassert their presence in some way and mess things up in some fashion or another? Mm. Two questions. So yes. let's start with the Stevenson one. Yes, the Stevenson one is I want to say no and yes. I think that Image. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, no offense, Eric Stevenson, yeah. but I think it could go on fine without him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I would say that, as far as I can tell, right now. The biggest single game changing element is Robert Kirkman. And I think that Kirkman came into that as a, you know, at working very diligently and breaking his way in and all but, you know, begging and pleading to get a chance to do Walking Dead in there and had done a, a ton of work for, um, Eric Larson. You know, I, I don't, yeah. so I think, I think that Stevenson can say a lot of stuff, but, um, and I think that there's a way in which I don't know. So yes, my I'm just going to stick with that. Actually, I, I I have a certain degree of respect for the way that Stevenson is trying to shape the image mission statement, and I think that is super super important. But I do not think I don't I don't think that it's it's vital to image's current success or continued success. Yeah. I, I I agree. I, I think that uh, Stevenson is doing a lot of good stuff. 
Yeah. But I also don't think that what is happening is happening because of Stevenson. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think he's a vital part of it, to be brutally honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you think uh, Image will be able to continue with its current publishing strategies or will the founders want to reassert their presence in some way and mess things up in some fashion or another? Uh, I think it should be able to continue with its current publishing strategies. I, I think when you have things like Eric Larson this past week just being an arse, I don't think that really impacted Image at all as a whole. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think because uh, you, you've got Larson, you've got Liefeld, you've got McFarlane, mm-hmm. and all of them, to some extent or another, are already laughingstocks. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think Image now is independent enough of its founders that they do something dumb, and everyone, instead of going, look at Image, is like, well, th- oh, come on. Right. But have you read Wicked and Divine? Do you know right. what I mean? Or have mm-hmm. you read Prophet? Have you? I I think I can't imagine, short of the founders actually saying we are now going to decide what gets published and what doesn't, and it has to pass our taste test. Mm-hmm. I don't think the founders can do anything to damage image. So here's my here's my thinking, which is uh, I'll try and be super quick, of course. Listeners, many years ago, I drove all the way to, down to San Diego for the opportunity to sleep with Graham McMillan. But uh, in in order to do so, uh, Graham required we, we, me... Well, we should actually also say that you did, in fact, sleep with me. We were in separate beds. <sighs> Man, you really, you're you so good at like teasing out information the rest of the time. But yes, we did. We did. We, we slept together in separate beds. I hope you can see the air quotes that I'm doing. Jeff, I'm not saying what happened before we were in separate beds. (laughs) There we go. That's the Graham McMillan I know. But in order to do so, I kind of had to – it was kind of like a fairy tale where I had to like complete all these magical tasks. And (laughs) one of them was to attend like the image uh, comics panel. Uh, Yeah, this was what, 2008? I think it was. It was such a long time ago. Yeah, now. It's seven years ago now, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is great. Like, I went there. Like, Joe Keating was their, you know, their head of sales and marketing. I think, you know, and I sat there in the front row typing stuff up, and the image founders were all there, and they were all super excited about. Their image big United. announcement, image which United. was Image United, exactly. It was going to be an upcoming miniseries written by Kirkman, drawn by the rest of the Image crew, featuring crossovers of all their characters. And they all sort of sat there and, and, and I want to say beamed, but they're not really a gregarious bunch. They just basically, you know, they sort of chortled at each other and sort of, you know, looked proudly on at the crowd. And then it came time for questions and answers, and everybody got up and asked, Robert Kirkman about either Invincible or Walking Dead or yeah. Walking Dead or Walking Dead. And and so to me, part of me was like, well, at least those guys sort of knew a little bit like, oh, we I guess we should pay attention to this guy. But it was a little bit of that sense of they didn't know that their star had passed, really. I mean, maybe they sort of vaguely suspected, but I think their whole thing was the way they expected that to go, it really did not go that way. And I think, so here's my thing. On the one hand, I can see a way in which the in the past, the founders took 
you know, somebody would come in like Valentino when he, you know, as as one of the founders and he would run a lot more indie stuff. He had a lot broader spectrum in comics. You would see image start to diversify. And then there would be some guy, you know, McFarlane or Leafield would step forward and be like, okay, but yeah, what we really want is a Wildcats renaissance, you know, and but you can't have it. They're over Wildstorm in DC now. The, oh yeah, that's right. Wildcats. Sorry, who am I thinking of? Youngblood. Uh, Cyberforce. Right, exactly. All of those guys. So, but Spawn. but there is something that is that is that is worth mentioning, which is that Image has the one of the best deals in comics as as publishers go, and it is a deal that means that Liefeld, Lee, and McFarlane, and I want to say I don't remember Valentino still uh, if he and Portacio got bought out or who who remains, but you know Kirkman's in there too too, is that those guys do not see really money from the success of Walking Dead. You know, like that, I mean, Kirkman does, but those other guys, Image is set up to be a distribution company. They were geniuses. Whoever helped them set up the original deal back when they stepped forward were brilliant because essentially they keep premier status with Diamond as long as they put out a certain number of titles. And what happened was at that point, because of the, there are, you know, what that meant for them in terms of being able to stock overflow in the diamond warehouses, in terms of being able to put, you know, ads in the diamond catalog and front of the market thing. That just meant as long as they had a certain number of titles, it was good for all of them, you know? So that allowed them to be like, well, yeah, sure. We, and, you know, and we believe in artistic freedom and diversity and your ability to, to own your own destiny. So, you know, let's overlook our own work for higher studios that we have working underneath us at this point. Um, let's just, you know, let's offer those deals to other people and we'll take almost nothing off there. Now they don't invest much either, but they don't have to worry. And again, they get the benefits as long as there's a certain number of titles rolling through that door. Now, now that image is big and huge and there's a lot of money flowing through there, I don't think, and I could be wrong, that there's a lot of money going directly into the pot, into the pockets of Liefeld and Lee and McFarlane and any non-Kirkman person. And they may be like, well, okay, but how do I, I, like, I want a piece of this. In the past, that meant, like, we're putting all of our sales and marketing directly behind the return of, I almost said Wildcats again, Young Blood, or... <laughs> the relaunch of spawn you know but but in this particular instance what if it means that suddenly they start taking a small bite of the pie um i would think i would hope that what the founders will do in that situation when they start seeing the big big amounts of money being passed around and their big big egos don't think like, oh, this is great because the larger that image gets, this means when I bring back Spawn, when I bring back, you know, whatever, it, I'm going to have an enormous publishing and marketing arm behind me and I'm going to be able to get my stuff into libraries and I'm going to have all this stuff. Once they stop thinking that people care about them, once they realize that their time has passed, what happens then? Do they take a cut of the pie, which could change the nature of image and or 
how it uh, affects everyone else later on down the line, you know, or does it end up being a situation where I think, and I could be wrong, that these guys will try setting up situations a lot like Kirkman Skybound if they have the money to do it, where they put forward the money to actually do things like Kirkman did for Witch Doctor or something like that. And in in return for that, they have a chunk of the rights. How big of a chunk of the rights for the larger marketing or whatever. Now, it may, it may be that each of these guys have, you know, over the years spent all that money that they don't really have the money to essentially invest in that, in which case maybe we'll see something else happen. But that's a way in which I could see things changing. Whether or not it messes something up, it could it could change the balance of things. I think you're entirely right. I hadn't thought about almost any of that. <laughs> it's funny you're talking about it. And I'm like, well, that of course everyone would just leave image. Yeah, right. Like, but that's that's entirely the question. Like, right. like, would that mess things up in some fashion or other? If they decided to do that, yes. I uh, optimistically think that they wouldn't do it because I think they know how bad that would be. But yeah. greed defeats optimism at every given opportunity. Yeah. So I don't know why I'd think that. <laughs> Next questions are a bunch of questions all about your beard. So I'm going to be asking them of you and you can answer them. You ready? Okay. Yes. If Jeff, still a group, by the way, everyone. If Jeff's beard could be described as a kind of waffle, what kind of waffle would it be? Pesto mango. If Jeff's beard were sentient, would it A, prefer Marvel or DC? Mm, I'm going to say, well, if it's sentient and then it's not part of me, I'm going to say it would prefer manga. Would it B, be editorially mandated or creator-driven? Since it's manga, a combination of the two. C, follow characters or follow creators? Uh, with manga, I th again, let's say a combination of the two, although I think manga is skewed towards characters. And D, be a Grant Morrison fanboy or an Alan Moore fanboy? Mm, it'd have to be an Alan Moore fanboy. If Jeff's beard fought Alan Moore's beard, which would win? It would be Alan Moore's beard. It oh. eats Jeff's beard. Yeah. Uh, does Jeff's beard have plans for world conquest? Uh, Not, it has to wrestle Alan Moore's beard for the... Uh, well, yeah, A, it's like I think Jeff's beard would actually be happy if it could actually get all the food out of it after a meal, much less world conquest. It's... It's it's an enormous beard, but it's a very humble beard. Aww. Jeff's beard. <laughs> Scott Ashworth asks, aside from the Wait What Holy Trinity of Kirby, Englehart, and Gerber, who are your choices for the most consistently interesting writers at Marvel in the period between Lee's and Shooter's editorships? Chris Claremont uh, and Walt Simonson. Interesting. I guess Simonson hadn't really done, wasn't really writing between uh, Lee and Shooter, huh? Well, so yeah, Claremont, I guess between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Claremont, uh, Claremont. Starlin, probably. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Claremont, Starlin, uh, the always overlooked, um, and it's a crime that Master of Kung Fu is not reprinted, uh, Doug Mensch. Um, but Mench, uh, Don McGregor? Don McGregor, who's absolutely in my top ten favorite dudes um, for at Marvel during that time, uh, I think those are the big guys in terms of consistently. I think I think Conway has incredibly interesting stuff that he's doing in both Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. I think his stuff in Avengers and all the other stuff that he dabbled in felt kind of flat. I think I think Bill Mantlo is incredibly underrated because he did so much work on toy titles that may never but, get but, reprinted. 
but it's so so great. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so great. Yeah, honestly, genuinely fantastic. Well, when I say honestly, genuinely fantastic material, I mean stuff that for many people would. I think I just think that well, it will come up to it later on. But yeah, Mantlo is is somewhat inconsistent, but I think his stuff is fantastic, and it's a shame that I think he's kind of an unsung hero in that way. Yeah. So. David Clark asks, at what Patreon tier do we get a monthly Jeff tries to explain manga to Graham podcast? Uh, thank you, Dave, for giving me a softball. I I sort of love doing it. I was shocked because normally people seemed like they were in, in it mainly to make fun of me. But now it seems like people are like, oh, my God, manga sounds what the fuck. So who knows? Um, you know, I can probably be flattered and controlled to throwing it in at the 1000 level. I think we just have to rope off like what that means because I'm not reading a lot of <laughs> can i say i love that you're taking this question so much more seriously than i did oh and david clark did so yeah but anyway uh david clark's <laughs> other question you, had, no, but you actually gave a figure which is amazing and you're like i've got to think about what that means i'm supposed to be being like haha funny joke <laughs> <laughs> yes hopefully that's not because jeff's getting in absurdly hum- uh, humorless. David Clark also asks, have you guys seen the TV series Utopia, the British thriller one that lasted two seasons, not the nope. Australian comedy one? If so, nope. talk about it. No, right? Neither Sorry. of us. Yeah. Uh, if not, consider giving it a go. I think you guys would dig it and the first season revolves around hunting down a comic. I'd love to see it if it comes on Hulu or is available on Netflix. I'm willing to hunt it up. Uh, he also asks about the cultural implications of the new Batgirl series being a magnet for internet controversy. I thought that was quite a good question. I really uh, did. It, it kind of breaks my brain. Yeah. Because... I, it really does. It's uh-huh. like, there's so much to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and also, I'm not sure what culture. I think it speaks very positively of comic culture because I think it points. I think the particular internet controversies that have surrounded the new Batgirl series mm-hmm. speak about uh, uh, a model of inclusiveness mm-hmm. that is not the comic book norm. Right. Uh, and I think that's really good. Yes. And I also think that for the most part, and I'm only saying that to cover my ass because I'm sure there's been bad, re- like a bad response somewhere, but the responses of the creative team have been really good as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very good at being humble, and uh, if not outright we fucked up, then at least we didn't even think about that. We're really sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it says a lot of good things about the potential for change within comic culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it also you, with things like the Batgirl cover, the cover that just happened, uh, it also points to some of the worst things about comic culture. So yeah, I I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I, so far the cultural implications are for, I'm going to just go with, I am cautiously optimistic because, because A, I think that I've generally have thought that most of the controversy that has erupted has been, uh, I'm glad that it has been brought up and I feel that it was addressed in a way that did not lead to crazy you know to to a lot of a lot more heat and so yeah. it strikes me that that, that is uh that is that That's is something i'm want, optimistic about yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah um i will say this though i uh someone and i'm sure it's someone at marvel 
has been very good at getting news stories in the media about, hey, have you seen how many people are reading the new Thor book? Uh, and also there was a thing in the Guardian just uh, yesterday along the lines of like, hey, female superheroes are awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like all Marvel superheroes. And it's like, and there's also Bitch Planet. <laughs> and I was kind of like, this is amazing. Like yeah. DC is totally shut out of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me that the wider cultural implications of something like a Batgirl or a Harley Quinn or a Batwoman mm-hmm. um, are being erased mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's that genuinely is is fascinating to me. I, I wonder. I wonder if something is ever going to correct that or if it will just become a a media truism that Marvel led the way and Image had some books too and mm-hmm. isn't it a shame that DC didn't do anything? Uh, yeah, we'll see. Because honestly, I think this is one of those situations where I kind of wonder the extent to which a lot of the people who are... Um, I just, I, I think, I think that a lot of the people who are writing about this stuff now are, tend to be a, either recent converts to, like, the newly fanatical, you know, converts to, I guess, comics, and they may have come that way via Marvel's movies, or more likely, cause I, I really do think, I get the sense from some of the stuff being talked spoken around the internet that there are a lot that the X-Men animated series introduced a lot of people to, and particularly a, a lot of uh, female commentators who were just kids, like gave them that valuable first ex- dose of superhero action. And, and so they equated in their mind with it in a way that you kind of can't with Batman the animated series even when there's like you know a strong presence by Harley Quinn or Batgirl in some of it or even when the New Justice League worked hard to make sure that storylines included Wonder Woman and Hawkgirl there was still a lot of it was still kind of an 8 to 2 membership split as opposed to the X-Men comic which came closer to I don't know 4 to 4 or something like that you know mm. so I'm so I think that honestly that may end up being the narrative until you know DC's like Batgirl Adventures or you know all you know Seven Soldiers of Victory with like an all female group you know oh no yeah but again that won't mean anything it won't you know, mean anything because like, now it, yeah but I just it won't mean anything for a generation yes least. yeah because. You know, you have you have the uh, you have Marvel being like A Force. Look at us; we've got mm-hmm. no female super team, and no one's ever like, "Wait, but Birds of Prey did this more than a decade ago." Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because because and it's just it's being it's so yeah. I think actually, I think the narrative is I think DC I think DC is going to lose until you until they figure out a way to capture, um, you know, female viewers in the crib, you know. So we'll see what happens. Cause I, and I think for that part, they've always been kind of. Yeah. Something is wrong with their PR. Mm-hmm. Well, some, something's wrong with their PR, but again, I do think that it's kind of like you had birds of prey more than, you know, well over a decade ago, but they weren't, 
they weren't in other media apart from the Birds of Prey TV show, which everyone seized on and then was so terrible and canceled and it was gone in six episodes. <laughs> yeah. You know what um, I mean? Like there's a yeah, lot I mean, of that stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of it in DC history. For example, if you're talking about diversity, you should look at the lineup of the new 52 when it launched. Mm-hmm. Which was really good in terms of diversity. Mm-hmm. It's just the comics were terrible and they were cancelled super quick. Yeah, exactly. But they made, they made an attempt, not mm-hmm. a particularly good attempt, but the attempt was made. Right. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's weirdly fascinating to me. But I'm getting off the questions. Yes. Dave Clark again asks, isn't it weird the comics are still pencils, inked and coloured? Inking was originally developed to work around technical limitations of mass productions, which don't really exist anymore. Even though a ton of illustration is done for the film and video game industry, very, very little of it is of the black line work and colour added behind it variety. Thoughts on bites still going on strong in comics. Predictions for the future. Jeffrey? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I have to punt, which... I, uh, oh, because, don't punt. All right, well, I'll keep, I'll keep my answer short then if I can. Um... As far as I can tell, the inking pro- – as, as Dave points out that it was developed to work around technical limitations of mass production, it also frankly existed as a way to divide labor. Uh, back then you had bullpens where comic studios where people worked side by side and in order to turn this stuff out – on super, super short notice, on a round-the-clock basis, you would have a penciler, you would have an inker, you'd have the letterer. You know, it, I, I feel like it was also built around that, at least to the extent that I've heard it talked about in, you know, pinko rags like the Comics Journal or whatever. There's a, there is a way in which that division of labor is still attractive to comic book companies now because I feel that it is very difficult for artists to genuinely do like even in the nature of considering all the stuff we have with like Photoshop and in theory, someone should be able to do like an entire comic, you know, one a month or whatever. We're a long, long way from having anyone approach the level of Kirby's productivity, for example, but Kirby was inked, you know, so, Looking at Ultra Comics, because it's right beside me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ultra Comics has one writer, one penciler. It has four inkers. Yes. It even has two colorists. That's right. Uh, so yeah, Division of Labor is still a, a great, grand th- uh, thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to consider in terms of output. And also, to be honest, even outside that, I think the inherent conservative nature of comics and uh, traditionalist and nostalgia-based Mm-hmm. thing in mainstream comics is going to keep inkers in place for a while. I think so too. I Ultimately, I think the, the, the other thing that it really boils down to, and it was true in Vince Coletta's time. Vince Coletto said that, you know, he would get something that absolutely positively, an entire book that had to be inked in 24 hours, and he would turn it around and get it in, the, get it in and then if people complained about it, it, like, he did the best that he could. You know, there's... Um, I work in the law firm field industry for a ridiculously long time. <laughs> the law firm field. The law firm field. I'm in. I'm in law firms. Uh, just making them, creating them. You know, uh, showing up for them occasionally. And 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 one of the things killing that, is, that law firm field. Yeah, starting exactly, it over. Exactly. Back, so back in the day, there was you know. <sighs> 
back before fax machines, when things absolutely positively had to get out the door for the messenger and the deadline, that was the deadline. People worked right up until the last millisecond to make that deadline. Then when fax machines allowed us to sort of instantaneously transport stuff from side to side and, and you gained a huge number of hours that no longer had to be spent on overnight delivery, did that change? Did that give everyone breathing room? No. Everybody continued to work up to the last moment. And well, I, but to be fair, it did give you breathing room. It's just that you didn't you used it to breathe. Uh, how do I put it? It gave the attorneys time to breathe. You know, I, it's it's still part of the process, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's still it's still it's it's part of the process. It doesn't get passed on to the right people, but it's still part of the process. Yes, that is true. So we get we get situations where you know, and and there are many reasons for it. I remember a comic book writer uh, telling me that he one of the things that that he, he absolutely adored the artist that he was working with, but he was like, oh, he overthinks it. Like all of his instincts are good. But he doesn't believe in himself. And so his penciling, like staring at the blank page is hard. And staring at a blank page when you've got a script that you're supposed to translate can be difficult. So, you know, people like John Byrne, like, talk about, like, ah, back in my day, things, you know, there, I think sometimes there is more time or less time. Like, there's times where, like, someone like, you know, again, Grant Morrison, there are stories that people have told of like, yeah, I would just be standing and waiting by the fax machine and then this fax would come out and it would be written in all caps and there'd be strange drawings all over it. And that'd be all that I get for like two days, you know? So, so yeah, there's more, there's more time in the industry. It continues to be gobbled up at the upper ends and then you need people to come through in the pinch and that's why you'll have letterers and colorists and inkers. I think. What breakfast foods are each of the classic Avengers? Asks Adam Nave. And I'm so tempted to answer reading the answer. That you I was afraid you would do that. <laughs> it would have been very funny. What Jeff answered is that the Hulk was coffee. Captain America was ham that needed the fats trimmed off. Iron Man was bacon. What worlds do you have ham and bacon? America, Graham. No, Welcome seriously, to Planet on. America. No, I actually spent some time thinking about that too, and I was thinking about putting. Well, originally I was like, okay, Iron Man has to be like a panini maker or some sort of electro electric device, you know. So it's like at first I was like toast, but then I was like, the Wasp has to be butter. So Giant Man slash whatever the fuck he is has to be toast. Like you can, it's all sorts of like you can change the name, give it a different type of bread. It's still fucking toast. Iron Man, like, at the end of that, it was also interesting that I was very uh, resistant to... Well, anyway, let's read off the rest of the list, and then we can argue about Iron Man. Uh, okay, so you also have Giant Man being Toast, Wasp being Butter. I see what you did there. Thor being Muesli. Quicksilver is a soft-boiled egg. Scarlet Witch is an exotic melon. Oh, my God. And Hawkeye is a sugared breakfast cereal. Let's just skip past exotic melon, shall we? I think it's good for all of us if we do that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say yes to all of those with the exception of exotic melon because Jeff. Okay. So also, for some reason, I'm saying Scarlet Witch is the egg. As a soft boiled egg? No, she's a hard boiled egg. See, this, this is, this is, yeah. Okay. Maybe. And it's cause this, you crack the shell and it's going to look like her little, like, here, yes, for exotic melons. Is that where you're going with that, Graham? How dare you, sir? How <laughs> no, dare <really> you? <laughs> That's all you. 
Uh, elsewhere in Jeff's exotic melon camp. What? No. Okay. Paul Spence asks, because I'm just moving on, Jeff. Oh, man. People, tell me what Iron Man should have been besides bacon. Send it, leave no, it in I like comments. Iron Man being bacon. It's ham that needed the fat trimmed off, I think, okay. is my problem. But Captain America is ham that needed the fat trimmed off. That is absolutely <laughs> the first answer. There's like, no like, other answer. If you just look it up, yeah, then exactly. you'll, you'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, the reason I'm going uh, is, for some reason, my monitor keeps going off. Really? Yes. Oh, so all of a sudden, I just lose the screen. It's got the questions on it. Paul Spence asks, while I still have the chance, could the whatnots give us an assessment on Brandon Graham's profit? I believe that Jeff likes it, but Graham does not. I think that's the assessment you're looking yeah, for, Paul. That might be um, I really like Profits, and I believe that it is one of the most... Uh, sorry, it is the most original and challenging of all the sci-fi titles that Image has launched over the last four years. Yes. The number of uh, Image sci-fi offerings seem the same to me. Too many of them are formulaic, post-apocalyptic dystopias. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that as well. So uh, let, let's move on a little bit. I think, Paul, it's great hearing your opinion. I wish we could give you more, but I think you're absolutely right. I have to admit, I did not finish up the end of Profit, and it's, 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 it's on the re Is it over? Yes and no. I mean, there was the original series, the original. There's Brandon Graham series that ran through issue 40, whatever it is, 5, 6, or whatever, and I made it, I think, to 41 or 42. Then it, quote-unquote, ended. Then the Profit Strike Files came out. In an order that I've managed to miss, I think, every one of them, and I'm more or less committed to – I think I've bought two of them digitally, but I have to do the whole reread. So, And I do not know what's happening to it was, after Profit Strike I was going to say, what, was the Strike Files the end of it? I don't know. That's super weird. Uh, no, apparently uh, it was going to relaunch in a series called Profit Earth War starting in January, which clearly hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know because, of course, Brandon's doing all this stuff with Island. I don't know, I don't know how that's changed up. So, uh, but I think overall, I think he was correct. That mm-hmm. you like, I did not. Um, mm-hmm. The reason I didn't is very similar to the reason I don't like Jonathan Hickman stuff. In that, like, I can appreciate it on a technical level, mm-hmm. and I can appreciate it in theory, but I don't actually like it. Mm. It it holds no emotional resonance for me. And as a result, I, I'm, le- I'm left thinking, that's, I'm sure that's great. <laughs> right. And this is actually, I think beyond that. I think that's actually a really, really good point, Graham, because it actually does sort of solidify kind of the last kind of piece for me is I grew up like reading superhero comics very much in the Stan Lee manner, which is to say that there's a lot of soap opera to it. And so I, I do have the association of reading superhero comics for quote unquote, the characters, but I have also like a variety of other comics and there's times where I don't need that you know, as much. And Prophet is a great example. Prophet has such a, a brilliant tone. And um, for someone like me, who I think really is very unschooled in science fiction, uh, it just strikes me as rem- remarkably intelligent and knowledgeable about science fiction beyond the ways that most people talk about it. It seems to me that Graham has read a lot, of science, of science fiction, hard science fiction, soft science fiction, all sorts of that stuff, and is very grounded to it. And also because of his um, his storytelling and cartooning chops and his his age, he also 
is very experienced in other interpretations of science fiction comics. So he's able, Prophet was wonderful because you could see, you know, you could say like, oh, hey, it's Space Conan. And that was fun. And there were times where it dipped into that. But really, honestly, it moved. It was, it was heavy metal. It was very much exactly. more than it was. It was exactly. space cannon. It was, it was much it more was... than space cannon. Space Conan, which believe me, I would have loved. Um, and it has moments of it. Really, is much stronger. Has much stronger ties to heavy metal magazine and the European influences in there. Although, honestly, again, kind of everything all over the place. So, which I think is, is speaks to Brandon as a creator in general. Yeah, and and so consequently, I think there is there's a lot. Of, I'm able to experience it with just kind of the wonder and delight. With which I can appreciate a subset of comics. And, you know, this is going to come back later. I can already tell. And maybe, Graham, you can figure out what question. But, yeah. So, um, well, yeah. we should uh, do the second half of Paul's question. Yes. Can you voice... Can... Oh, you go. oh, yeah. Do you want me... I'll, I'll read that part. And then do you it. Can start with that. Can you, voice... can you voice an opinion about Graham's earlier magnum opus, King City? I've been rereading it recently. And I keep finding new layers in the work to enjoy. Graham's art is stunning in its detail, and it looks gorgeous in black and white. I love Graham's off-center sensibilities and the way he embraces surrealism. He's not a creator that everyone I can enjoy that everyone can enjoy, but I appear to be on whatever quirky wavelength he is on, and his work really speaks to me. Um, here is my opinion on Graham's earlier magnum opus, King City. I think you're right, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the quirkiness in that is what sells it to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it very funny. I find it very uh, like I have an emotional connection with that. Mm-hmm. I, I I can see myself or I can I can see something to appreciate there that is lacking for me in profit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a very funny book not only in the uh, the dialogue but also like it's filled with puns. It's filled with background jokes. It's, it's just it's there, no wonder you're going back and finding new things about it because it is just Full of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it is impressively stacked with mm-hmm. with with information mm-hmm. and with fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Which you know, again, not uh, there's a strong heavy metal influence there in that way as well. Yeah. No, I I think you're right. Yeah, you can see you can see the fun that Mobius is having in his work in a lot of his work. Uh, you know, all of those guys had a certain sense of humor that they were willing to break out, even though we think of a lot of their work as a lot more um, stoic or staunch or, or mystical than it might actually be. Uh, it's just, it's great. I, I love King City a lot. I love multiple warheads. Um, and honestly, there was part of me that enjoyed so much of that that I was like, if only, like, at, at a certain point, it was like, we got, you know, a good chunk of multiple warheads, then it went away and we were still getting profit. And I had a little bit of that, ah, but I want this stuff, you know? Um, yeah, that was, that was very much my feeling, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I really like multiple, multiple wars as well. And um, when it seemed as if that had gone in the back burner for him to do profit, mm-hmm. I really did have a sense of like, oh, but that's not the stuff I like from him. Right, right. And, and I like both, but honestly, like, you know, in, in in my world, Profit would have been an amazing four-issue miniseries filled with brain-breaking ideas, and we would have gotten, you know, 20 plus, 25 episode issues of multiple warheads, you know? 
So, I mean, I know you can't try that. Gatehouse will eventually appear, Jeff. Who knows Mm -hmm. what that's going to be like. Yes, yeah. So, we'll see, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, I do love that stuff. And I'll throw in, I do love the character, I love the characters in King City. I love how King City is such a chronicle of somebody's 20s, I think. Yes, yes. It's, it's a very young comic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a young comic. Yeah, and, and it also is, it's a young comic and it's also a comic that's about the small pleasures in life set against the tapestry, set against a ridiculously deeply absorbing tapestry. And I, and I, that also speaks to me the same, the same way that, you know, the, when he relaunched multiple warheads and it's like, oh, it's, it's two lovers on a road trip, you know, and that also spoke to me in the ways of the, the little loving things between them meant just as much as the enormous evocative stuff that, that he was working in there as well. No, I, I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's something you said that sort of struck out for me as well was, I think, oh, and there are the dogs, <laughs> um, was that it's about the, pleasures of being in your 20s. Yes. I feel like so many comics yeah. are about the oh, things are so bad. Yeah. I do, I do actually miss out on like the good stuff. Yeah. Like, like you know, in, in that way, a lot like Scott Pilgrim, there's that idea of being able to meet your, meet up with your friends in a funky restaurant means the world. Yes. You know? Yes. Or, or just like small romances have mm-hmm. such epic scale. Yes. Yeah. You know, exactly. which I think both Scott Pilgrim and King City mm-hmm. managed to capture mm-hmm. really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like the, the things that are amazingly small in scope really right. do seem like, you know, an epic adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Know, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I really do appreciate that. And that actually might be why Profit doesn't work for me in the same way that King City does. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that a lot of what I liked about King City was the idea that the everyday gets transformed into mm-hmm. something larger. Mm-hmm. But then you get to Prophet and he's like, I'm in space. <laughs> it's like, okay then. <laughs> well, I guess we're just doing big stuff from the get-go. Yes, exactly. That's pretty good. Uh, Jeff Lang asks, what did you guys think of the Captain Marvel slash Warlock stuff when you first read it? And why do you think the powers that be behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe have embraced that particular sliver of the mid-70s? Convenience, Spanish devotion, a mix of the two, something else? Um, I'm going to start with Jeff. I reject your premise. What? Wait, what? Oh, you... I don't think the powers that be really have embraced it. Yes, uh, I see what you're lot. saying. I, I mm-hmm. think they've embraced it as like a MacGuffin. But we've not really... Like, you've had Thanos pop up in the background to be like, I'm sitting on a chair. Right. Um, but beyond that, it's not... Like, I don't feel it's really taking anything from that era. Yeah. I, 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 I think that Joss Whedon clearly has deep affection for it. He's talked about the Marvel 2 one annual with uh, Spider-Man and the Avengers on multiple occasions. Yes. As being something that was deeply affecting to him when he was a kid, yeah. Um, but I honestly kind of think that if he he didn't, mm-hmm. I'm sure that they would have come up with something else. Yeah. So 
my understanding, and of course, leave leave it to Graham to, of course, know more and more deeply, is I remember seeing something where Whedon had said that he was the one who pitched Thanos at the end of the Avengers and made the case for it, and it very much tied into his love for that for that material. Um, and so he's there, the sense of the cosmic world being there in Marvel is very, um, it's there, but it, I, yeah, I think actually it's a really good point on, on Graham's part that it is not technically yet anything really like Starlin. You know, Starlin was working with a very deeper, almost more personal set of ideas that he was trying to integrate that, that honestly skewed very, very nihilistically. Um, yeah. And, and you're just not going to get that in the movies. Yeah. All. Yeah. You, I just, I really don't, I think that's very unlikely. Now, that being said, I do think that Joss Whedon, chose Thanos out of a mixture of convenience and fanish devotion. Because I think for him, he was like, okay, you know, part of him's like, this is the stuff that I love, but Thanos is like, who's, who is a good big bad in the sense of someone who has enough power to take on the whole super team on his own? Like, there's yeah. not a lot of dudes like that. And I think that's important to the Avengers movie because there is a little bit of the idea of, like, you don't want to spend a huge chunk of time, like, introducing, like, what the fuck are they called? The the Fearsome Five? Or who the fuck are the, the guys, like, we just read these fucking issues. Spinning top, you know, like, the top masters of evil. The masters of evil. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I honestly thought you were talking about the Frightful Four. First. Yeah, no, I know. I was like, I was like what? It. Yeah. It's, I jumped, I no, jumped. Well, it's not just that. The Avengers movie, uh, it doesn't have to end the way it ends, but mm -hmm. you also can't imagine it ending any other way now because it ends with, uh, a next time they're leveling up. Yeah. And you, you can only go so many places if you're going to level up from Loki in the Marvel Universe. That's true. Yeah. Well, plus and as it is, they yeah. didn't. Like, right. You know what I mean? They're, they're like, add Ultron. <laughs> well, but I think, I think Ultron, yes. I, there, there's a variety of other factors. I mean, cause I think they could have, yeah, again, there's, there's a lot of convenience factors. So. Okay. So I, I have a, uh, a related question then. Mm -hmm. Um, with all that, all we've, what we've just said in mind, are you, bothered that Joss Whedon isn't going to be around to do the end of the story? Um, no, no, not really, because, well, because, I don't know, I, I just, part of me, <laughs> because ultimately I don't care. Well, I kind of don't care, I don't care, I think I've said this on multiple times, the movie universe is not, I, I'm not emotionally invested in it like yeah. at all or in any way so part of me is like ah eh, they do it they don't do it i mean in that point there's a level at which uh, a ridiculously entertaining failure to me is going to be almost as satisfying as a grand slam triumph because i just don't the cinematic version of the things i don't need i don't need the validation that i feel is at the heart of that for a lot of fans it just i'm like it doesn't matter um so part of me honestly thinks that it's that there is also a way in which um you know they've got they've got the roadmap and 
And I think that that roadmap will have important Whedon thumbprints on it. And sometimes, not always, there are times where Whedon puts himself into a corner in his TV shows where he's the only one who can get himself out. And when other people try it, it's terrible. And there's also, frankly, times where Whedon's too in love with his own material. Mm-hmm. And and I think that very well could have been one of those situations, you know? So, because I think, because... When you, I don't think that it would make sense to have the Avengers have their big two-part thing, you know, film with Thanos, and suddenly it's Star Lord with the Soul Gem stuck on his head and basically stuck in a situation where he has to decide whether or not to execute himself or not. You know what I mean? Which, admittedly, I know is playing with the facts of that issue, but you know, it's just it, since it's not going to map well, since it's not going to be Starlin by dint of the lack of, again, a little bit of that nihilism, that sort of operatic Michael Moorcock angle to it. What we're going to get is we're going to get something that's going to run off a completely different template, in which case, yeah, let's move Whedon out of there. I'm sure he had his bits and his points, and it can be whatever else they want to do with it, you know? It wouldn't surprise me if it ends up being the fucking Korvac saga, you know, in which Thanos turns into James Brolin, you know, as a as a dude in tennis shorts in a Connecticut mansion, you know, slowly well, well, eliminated. Well, that's the film I want to see. <laughs> uh, to answer the first part of the question, uh, when I first read the Starlin uh, Captain Marvel Warlock stuff, I was kind of freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. I read it, I think we both read it like at a relatively young age. We did. We did. Um, and it, it, it left me... Disturbed is too strong, but I didn't like it. It left me uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a couple of years between Captain Marvel and Warlock. Not much. Not, maybe it was not for me. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I think there was for me because I had read one it of when the... it came out. <laughs> What's that? You read it when it came out. I, I read it when it came out. And so I picked up one piece of Captain Marvel that was part of the Cosmic Cube saga, and I did find it disturbing. And it wasn't even the finale. It more or less is the issue right before the finale. It just seems to exist out of nowhere. And it was a little too... It was too old for me. I just... You know, I I didn't know what I was looking at. I couldn't really... I'm not even sure I understood the storytelling. I just found it a little disturbing, like you said, but in just sort of an off-putting way. Sort of the way that I talked about sort of coming across at an even younger age... Kirby's work for the demon and just being like, I don't, I don't, don't keep me away from that guy, you know? Um, but then by the time I warlock came out or maybe the time when I picked it up, cause I'm sure some of those issues were used. Um, at, at least when I started in the beginning and whatever, I was the absolute right age for that. And I adored the warlock stuff tremendously um it meant a ton to me and also because again i feel like there's so many strong you know there were stronger riffs that um you know that that i felt starlin was was working on so that to me at least at the time warlock was a more inherently interesting character than captain marvel uh, and frankly, Starlin had done quite an achievement when you go back and read those issues of just having managed to succeed in making Captain Marvel an interesting hero, you know? Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was just by the time he set up the potential and then he was gone by the time after that. So, uh, so yeah, but I adore that stuff. I adore that stuff now and, and the warlock stuff I super adored. So, okay. 
Yeah. There we go. Moving on. Yes. Uh, let me read this one. A simple question, but out of all the non-Big 2 series you've reviewed in the last year, th- sorry, this is Kevin McKendless, uh, which one would you recommend to someone getting back into alternative comics after a long hiatus? I mean, upper brow, up, upper middle brow appealing to NPR listeners, which describes me to a T, stuff like Palookaville or Bone. Uh, okay, so I'm going to say three. Okay. None of them are like Palookaville or Bone. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It was kind of, um, it's a toughie. This one, Summer, which you talked about last week. Mm-hmm. The the first second by... Oh God, I've forgotten their name again. Mariko... Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, Tamaki? Is Google. It, uh, Tamaki, the Tamaki sisters? It's, it's Mariko... Yeah, it's Jillian and Mariko Tamaki. Yeah. Um, is is just a beautiful, gorgeous book. Um, Over Easy by Mimi Pond. Mm-hmm. Which was a drawn a quarterly book from last year, and the Ranchies, ah, the so Farrell Dalrymple book. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think those are the three. I, I, okay, those, those are the three that would stick out in my brain. I'm sure there's others that I'm not thinking about. But here's the thing, and I could be wrong. But he says, but out of all the non-big two series you've reviewed in the last year, oh shit, series. Yeah, that's why I've had some some real problems. Oh man! Um, bah, 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 bah. I don't know. Yeah, it's. I it mean, is... I'm, I like immediately like well, Love and Rockets, I guess, but that comes out like once a year, and if you you know, right. you'll know Love and Rockets. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's, uh, it's... As, you know other stuff that immediately comes to mind isn't really being published right now. Like Ganges hasn't come out in a couple of years. Right. Oh yeah, Ganges would be a great one. I mean the. the Kevin That's Ganges un- by Kevin Huzanga. I should say that for people who are always getting upset that we never give context. <laughs> we don't. I'm really sorry. Uh, Ganges by Kevin Huzanga. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a fantagraphics series, I think. Um, that is great, but it ha- there hasn't been an issue in a couple of years at least. Hmm. Jeff, take it. Yeah, see, <laughs> I, I had some problems on this one. Oh, because I feel that the suggestions of like Bone and Palookaville bespeak a certain level of like kind of craft and yeah, I was, was going to say craft. Yeah. So it, it kind of gets tough for me and it's also there's sort of even bone, which comes closest to being um, in a, in being a part of genre uh, is actually a very difficult one. Like genre wise, you know um, what I'd say, honestly, Hmm. I would say if you're looking for something like Bone or Palookaville in the weirdest way, look online. I feel uh, like will give you a better. Yes, I think so. But considering, considering, I feel like I feel like Rhoda's speaking. I know, I, I specific. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of wiggling, but like something like Nimona, Noel Stevenson's. Nimona, see, I, think I was the, actually going to suggest uh, Lumberjanes to see... Yeah, L- Lumberjanes sort of stuck out when we were talking about Bowen in a series. Yeah, so like Lumberjanes is an all-age series that is that in its way reminds me of Bone. Sort of um, not as polished, but has the benefit of being sort of more bite-sized and digestible, I think, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so attempts to cheat and be like, 2080. <laughs> You can say that. I think. I think. No, but I, can, I, I don't think that's giving him what he's looking for. Do you okay. know what I mean? But then talk about why. Because I think 2088 is far more variable. Mm-hmm. 
B is an anthology with five stories an issue. Mm-hmm. And C is much more pulpy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think at its best, 2080 is wonderful trash. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it, and what, what's really throwing me out is Palookaville and Bone. Because it mm-hmm. makes me think that what he's responding to in Bone is the classic comic nature of it, mm-hmm. as opposed to the pulp adventure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Kevin, I may be totally misreading you here. Right. But, uh, um, but so because of that, like 2080 isn't really, it doesn't fit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I keep going back to graphic novels. You know, I keep going back to, you know, have you read Guy Delisle's stuff? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, hmm. Uh, what, like, what Guy Delisle stuff is lying under the assumption that... Oh, I was, uh, well, I was thinking of um, uh, Pyongyang and, and... Oh, shit. What was oh, the yeah. What's the out? other one that he did besides Pyongyang? The, the, I mean, he's done a few, but there was another one that was specifically yeah, town-oriented, right? Shenzhen? Yeah, Shenzhen. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Jerusalem's the recent one I was thinking of. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, like, I think that might might appeal. But again, not a series. Graphic novels instead. And also, they're older than a year. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Huh. Okay. So. It's a tough one. It is a toughie. It is a toughie. I. What's that? Copra. Yeah, yeah, Copra. Okay, so right. I would, yeah, I would suggest Copra. I think that's a great, great example, actually. Um, I'm going to go on a limb and also suggest Autumnland's Tooth and Claw because the art is beautiful in it. Uh, it is. Jerry's stuff is amazing. Yeah, so that, that comes out by image. It's done by Kurt Busick and Benjamin Dewey. The art is beautiful and i think when it gets collected in trade there's a chance that it will uh, attract a lot of attention um that being said i think i'm at least one issue behind on a similar note i think wild's end which you've heard us talk about which is essentially uh the wind in the willows meets the war of the worlds um has beautiful art by inj colbert um has sort of a weird mix of kind of just just amazing illustration being done on a on a very regular basis. Um, Along and, similar lines, then I'd recommend um, Brass Sun. Yeah, the, Brass the Sun. Other Ing Cobert series of last year. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was a mini, so I think you have to get it. Uh, we talk about Saga all the time. Saga, of course, I feel like gets a lot of uh, a lot of ground, um, and, and 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 rightfully so because I feel like. Uh, it's it's one of those books where it, every it's larger than the sum of its parts, and the parts are pretty substantial. But even when there's times where, if you start getting, um, just when you sort of start tuning out, maybe on what Vaughn might be doing with this, the story, you can really look at how Fiona Staple is just knocking it out of the park. And it's even though it's a science fiction story, it is a deeply Strange it's not really. Fiction. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's it's a science fiction story, uh, almost fake. It almost fakes it. It's a mm-hmm. it's the fake geek girls of science fiction stories because really it's a family drama. Right, right, exactly. Um, so I think those are worth 
checking out, I feel like those aren't necessarily, I mean, one of the things that I think is somewhat hard, Kevin, is the mechanism by which uh, Palookaville, certainly, and to an extent, Bone, were being produced on a regular basis, has sort of kind of dried up for a little bit, I feel, for that kind of material. People like um, Seth or Dan Klaus uh, are... Um, have kind of, you know, started doing, basically, instead of doing all the issues, they basically get a graphic novel under their, under their belt and they, they do the whole thing, you know, kind of all in a go. Um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot more OGNs and there's maybe not as much, uh, left in place. It's another OGN or series of OGNs. And again, it's another web thing that's been, that gone into print, but I would recommend the John Allison stuff as well. The Bad uh, Machinery books. Okay. I will say, and this is tough because it is a comic series that is 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 well over been a, been well over a year since the last issue. It's ridiculously hard to find, but I honestly feel, Kevin, that you would adore Popats by Ethan Reilly, published oh, by yeah. Ad House Books. There, I yes, think there's only would, it's, three it's issues out, but that is extraordinary stuff. That is the sort of stuff that. That when the collection comes out, it will be what will be talked about and sung praises on mm-hmm. NPR and things like You're that. You're totally, totally right. Yeah. And one last thing before we move on, because I feel like we could honestly just keep talking about this. Um, depending on what appealed to you about Bone, you might like Cartosia Tales, mm, which right. is uh, uh, an all-ages anthology, an all-ages fantasy anthology mm-hmm. that um, you should look up online mm-hmm. because I'm not sure where else to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, conventions definitely, but I'm not sure if it's in any stores. Um, but yeah, Cartosia Tales is is totally fun and might very much appeal to to your bone side. Yeah, yeah, it's tough because I feel like we've given you a lot of stuff on the fantasy side and maybe not as much stuff on the day to day burden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's um, uh, Bob Fingerman's book, uh, Minimum Wage, which uh, I think is on a break currently. Um, but is going to come back as regular issues. It had five or six issues before stopping and getting collected. Um, it's, I think, I think Fingerman is on the one hand, if you like his style, you'll adore the book. I find it readable, but, um, but maybe not as depthful as you might yeah. find something like that. I, I always so. want it to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Which exactly. Which is such a selfish thing to say, but it's true. I, I always want it better. Um, again, sort of fancy-ish, and again, not a series, but a graphic novel. But um, Brian Lee O'Malley's Seconds might appeal. Yeah, in fact, I, yeah, exactly. Part of me is like, Seconds, maybe check the Color Scott Pilgrim volumes, if you can check those out at the library if you miss them, because they're, they're actually, again, there's a day-to-day life stuff. It may be a Maybe it'll read a little too young for you, or maybe it'll absolutely hit the sweet spot. Um, if you like seeing just weird what the fuck stuff and have it hit the stands, Transformers versus GI Joe by uh, Tom Scioli and John John Barber is 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 uh, as we've raved about in, in other episodes, like just about on the fringes of outsider art, and is 
unbelievable in many ways. May may rub you absolutely the the wrong way, but it may also if you like that feeling of pick going into the stands and picking up something that it's like there's only really one place I can get this. Then, then I would go with that. Uh, honestly, also you may want to look into uh, Alice Cott's Zero um, in terms of stuff that has a that really is, strong cartooning element. Yes, that is totally out of left field, but I can very much see where you're coming. I'd also mm-hmm. recommend uh, Alice Cott's The Surface that he's doing with Langdon Fox. Right, right. Which I haven't which checked the, out. The first, but... the first issue has only just come out, but uh, again, it might, it might be what you're looking for. Yeah, we are yeah. recommending all manner of stuff here. We are, we yeah, are. And I'm sorry. I hope, <laughs> I hope you found something of value. In there, that. There's a lot in there, so you can go to the stand with the list. Maybe also see if Sex Criminals scratches your itch. I don't know if it will or not. I think there's a lot to to recommend it, and or Casanova for that matter. But I don't know. I don't. I don't really know. Just go 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 look at them. But at least we gave you some stuff to to try and think about. I guess. Chris Jerzombic. Mm-hmm. Asks, given the Lee Kirby tension in the FF stories, i.e. Kirby wants to go one way with the story, Lee wants to go another, would there be any value in rescripting some or all of the pages so that they better match the ideal, which I would assume for you guys would be Kirby's intention? I'm thinking particularly of pages where the art suggests Sue wants to stay with Namor, but the script is pulling her towards Reed, or ones where the heroes appear weaker than Lee is willing to concede. Or put another way, would these stories be better if they were fixed, or is the tension part of the fun for you? Uh, for me, definitely attention. Yeah, I've I've got to go with this too. Um, it goes back, and I'll, I'll, hopefully, I'll keep this very short. But but years ago, uh, Walter Murch re sat down with Orson Welles's thirty page memo and re edited a touch of evil to the to Welles's specifications because Welles had completed Touch of Evil. Uh, the studio didn't like what he delivered and recut the film. When Wells saw it, he basically was like, no, 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 I can fix this. I can address your issues and I can also make it better. And he, he talks about all these things. And, uh, in a long memo, a few years back, Merch went, remixed it, re-released it, it, you know, quote unquote, exactly as, um, as, as Wells wanted it. And I thought, I, I went and saw it and I was disappointed. I was let down. And ultimately there was a turning point for me at which the art that gets released into the world is flawed and broken and whatever it is. It's it. You kind of, I think, I think the world is better served by you only getting the one go around. Um, and actually, interestingly enough for people who have ac- have access to the digital Dropbox, my, uh, my script hell's not whole which I wrote and came this close to selling to a horror anthology uh, is very specifically about that. So as much as it breaks my heart, some of the choices that Lee makes um, that undercuts Kirby, uh, the tension now is part of the fun for me. And, and also, yes, Graham. Yes. Uh, I heard you take a deep breath, and I was worried I was cutting you off. I, I took a deep breath because I was leapt upon by a dog, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. I was not seeking to interrupt. Okay. Uh, also, I want to say that it's very interesting to me the way that the Lee and Kirby mix. I actually – like what I find interesting is, is that Kirby goes on to DC to create the Fourth World Saga and clearly tries to take – 
what was working for Stan Lee, or at least the things that Kirby thought was working for Lee, and try and do his own form of areas of it. And, of course, a lot of people are very much like, oh, I love Kirby, but he needs someone like Lee to, you know, so he's not writing that terrible dialogue. I love Kirby's writing on the new gods, and I don't feel it would have existed if he hadn't if he hadn't had to collaborate with Lee and also sure. to see the successes that they got. So, yes. And, and also for me, I'm not really sure I'd see what the point is of rescripting at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't undo the earlier comics and right. Like I, I don't, I don't get the point ultimately. Yeah. I think, I think sadly for better or for worse. And, and again, there is a fascinating tension that, that, that can emerge that gives you, gives you a lot of chewy stuff for policy for, for wonks like us. So, uh, JD Smith asks with private eye bowing at 10 issues, what do we take away from the model? What are you guys enjoying on the broader culture spectrum, books, music, film, and TV? Let's start with the private eye model. Shall we? Yeah, that's a toughie, I think. Cause... Um, I... What did I take away from the model? I'm glad it worked for them. Yeah. Is what I take away from the model. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm surprised it worked for them. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad it did. I don't think it's a sustainable model for everyone else. And as such, I think it's just going to remain like an oddity. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think, um, <laughs> oh man, I just thought of this analogy and I don't agree with it, but I have to say, let's face it, Brian K. Vaughn is the Amanda Palmer of comics. So, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, I think if that it doesn't. If line becomes excerpted from this podcast, it should be that one. <laughs> I, I think, I think that Private Eye the, just the fact that Vaughn himself said that it worked, but not as well as it's working for him at Image, I think to me says a lot about what that model could mean. And he says there's a lot of people who seem to prefer uh, an actual physical object. So if you look at Private Eye compared to a very similar model that's going on over at Thrillbent... I feel like there's very much uh, there. The truth is somewhere in between, you know, in that's terms really of. Funny, I was also thinking about Thrill Bent in terms of like, oh, that's great. It's a well-known in the direct markets creators digital playground that kind of doesn't impact anything outside of that. Well, I mean, actually, if you look at Thrill Bent, they're trying to break new creators in too, and I don't think that it's especially done a huge chunk for them or making a name for them as far as I know. I I could be wrong. You know? It's I feel that there is I I don't know. We'll see. I I, I was glad that Private Eye existed. I hope that they do more. I think as Graham perfectly put it in his, his recent review at, at at our website, um, so that they can do better. Cause I think that Private Eye ends up being a problematic case. Like it's kind of like it, a little it bit like it was what kind was. of a, a damp squib in the end, wasn't it? it? Well, see, this is it. I actually feel that it was a damp squib after about That's issue. Start. <laughs> well, no, I yeah, thought if yeah, no, no, it's true. After like issue four or something, even issue three, I would say, because honestly, there was a period where all of a sudden I realized that 
I hadn't bought five or six and I had read four and not remembered a single, not a single panel of it. So I had to go back and look at it. So yeah, I think it's, it was a damp squib at the middle. And so it's very, very hard to gauge. It's like two of the biggest creators, but they're not working in there. It just, it just didn't, it, it's hard to say if it had been, if it had been saga level material and in, in yeah, that format, like, it's so weird to me that, the Vaughn of Private Eye and Vaughn of Saga feels very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it it didn't come together for me at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, what, I, what are you guys enjoying on the broader culture spectrum? Books, Jeff. What are you reading? Uh, I am reading. Oh, man, I okay. So actually, uh, I'm reading. I finished uh, the Ocean at the End of the Lane. Before that, I read Savages. Uh, which had been made into a, a movie on Oliver Stone made it into a movie. And I'm currently reading dark places by Julian Finn Flynn, who wrote uh, gone girl. I loved her writing on gone girl, thought it was an amazing book and kind of was gripped with sort of a feverish Solieri esque admiration slash fearful hatred of how incredibly talented she was. And so I put off reading dark places, which was the novel she wrote before gone girl and thought I'll save it until I need the comfort knowing that she had to get better and start it, you know, worked her way up to that. And sadly, dark places is also fucking fantastic. I read it and, and I read it in pretty much the same state, if not more so, because it's only her second book and she was already that good. I think well, so you've got to read the first book now. I, I, I don't know if my soul will take it. It's it'll be like a Lovecraftian undertaking. This is what happens when you work at Entertainment Weekly, Jeff. Mm, yeah. No, no kidding, clearly, really. Clearly you get honed to a knife's point. Yeah, apparently. What's very funny is I'm also reading a book from a former entertainment journalist. Really? Yeah, I'm reading Worst Date Ever, which I'm sure I've told you about before. I don't think you... I totally, I totally took a detour in the middle of Worst Date Ever to uh, reread Pax Omega by Al Ewing. Could not tell you why. <laughs> Literally was like, I think I want to read that. I think it's still in my Kindle. It was. I did. <laughs> wow. I've, I've said before about um, Al Ewing's uh, Pax Britannica novels, mm-hmm. or Britannia, maybe. The... Um, it's a steampunk line put out by 2080s publishers in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's a prose line. And he wrote three books that are not set in the UK uh, and are set in America. The first of which, El Sombra, I might be getting that name wrong, mm-hmm. um, is is enjoyable enough. The second of which is great. It's mm-hmm. called Gods of Manhattan and is essentially an extended Dog Savage riff Ooh. Um, by Al Ewing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really great, really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third is Pax Omega, which is nuts. Mm. Really good, but nuts. It has, you, Jeff, you'd love it. Yes, um, if only you said so, the, and it's, yeah. Well, it, it has, for example, Jack Scorpio, who is essentially a, a turned on Nick Fury. <laughs> a Nick Fury who goes cosmic. Mm. Um, and it's got more of the, the Doc Savage analog. Mm-hmm. It's got more of the Lex Luthor analog who shows up in the Doc Savage book. It's got 
you know, crazy robotic things. It has a gunfighter who becomes a time-traveling immortal. Uh, and it pretty much goes from, like, the beginning of time to the end of time. Wow. So, you know, not that ambitious. No, uh, not at all, great. apparently. And so, for some reason, like, I in the middle of this book, Worst Date Ever, I was like, I'm going to reread this other one. And so totally did. <laughs> worst Date Ever, however, is... The full title is The Worst Date Ever, or How It Took a Comedy Writer to Expose Africa's Secret War. Wow. It's by Jane Busman, who... I actually initially knew as a writer for Chris Morris shows in the UK. Mm. Uh, and then she came to America to try and make it in movies and failed and ended up as an entertainment journalist. And the book starts with her in LA hating her life and hating her job. It's a memoir, I should say that. Cool. Um, and so you get some of the greatest, uh, everything I'm doing is terrible. Why am I contributing to the downfall of Western civilization? Mm-hmm. Sort of rant at the start, which I found particularly amusing and untouching. I can empathize a lot. Um, <laughs> but she then goes on to become involved with uh, a guy called John Pendergrass, mm-hmm. who goes to Uganda to investigate uh, Joseph Kony. Mm-hmm. And so the book takes a very different turn in the second half. Um, and it is is really enjoyable, but I think it's you have to very much have her sense of humor. If that makes sense. I think you have to be prepared for like smarky, bitchy, Mm -hmm. full of self-loathing and full of (laughs) self-righteousness. But I'm really enjoying it. So so that's what I'm reading right now. And I'm I'm definitely enjoying it. Uh, Music. What are you listening to, Jeff? Uh, I'm I'm listening to Spotify's hip hop workout. Um, I'm listening to Spotify's music for writers, an instrumental thing. And I am listening to Kanye West, re-listening to Kanye West, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, which I'm now convinced is, uh, is the, is the greatest album of the last 20 to 25 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I, I mean, I loved it when it first came out and re-listening to it. I'm like, holy shit. No, I, I, this is absolutely every bit. I was right. It was. <laughs> I was exactly. Well done me. Uh, and yourself, Graham? Uh, listening to the new Blur stuff. Uh, they had a, a live stream of the new Blur album being played live mm-hmm. yesterday that I, I loved. I've been really uh, conflicted about it because mm-hmm. it's like, this band that meant so much to me 20 years ago, is this a terrible idea? <laughs> and the first couple of songs really, like, I, I went from, this is amazing to, this is terrible, like, <laughs> on the same song. <laughs> wow. Like, flipping around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've sort of really come down to the, no, it's great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really, really liking it. And other than that, I have been completely in a in a hole of uh, Neil Simone and Billy Preston this week. Mm. So Nina, Nina Simone, Simone, Billy Preston. Nina Simone, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did you say Gail yeah. Simone, and then I actually signed off on that. That'd, That'd be, be so great. great. Yeah, N- Nina Simone and Billy Preston. Wow. Um, Billy Preston did. I mean, I've discovered him through the Beatles because yes. because I'm me. Mm-hmm. Um, and immediately after he did stuff with the Beatles, he did two albums for Apple mm. called As We Got Planned It and Encouraging Words. Hmm. Both, at least As We Got Planned It and I think Encouraging Words as well are produced by George Harrison. George Harrison definitely plays on both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just great. They're just, they're such great albums. I love them to death. And just recently I've been listening to that a bunch. Mm-hmm. I really a lot for some strange reason. Um, and before that, I was completely hooked on the monkeys and Harry Nielsen. 
which are kind in of particular, your, they're sort of your the, standbys, though, right? They're, yeah, those are kind but of, the Harry Nielsen demos for the monkeys, for some mm, reason, they got really, really holy a, shit. Like, that would be amazing. By. Yeah, yeah. Because it was pretty much just him acoustic. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, it's it's a bootleg that's like all over the place. Hmm. It's, it's easy to find. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 super fun. Uh, film. What have you been watching film wise? You know, I haven't I haven't seen a lot. We've continued to sort of um, sweep up in the aftermath of the Oscars and catch up on the best picture stuff. I have to say, uh, Whiplash is not a great movie, but there are parts of it that are great. It really is the most satisfying last 15 minutes to a movie, I guess, 20 minutes to a movie that I've seen in a long time. And there's parts and elements that are problematic, but honestly, I feel for anyone who's done, who seriously has tried to do creative work and or had artistic ambitions, it is, it's a, it's a, it's it's kind of a delightful movie that way. It really, cause that's all that it's about. The extent to which artists become geniuses through suffering or not for their art is, is great. And the tone that it takes on that ends up being just kind of exactly right. I kind of, I thought that that was, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was really pretty goddamn good. Um, and uh just just like I said, but really behind on movies otherwise. And just to throw in um T V while we're at it, uh I, Edie and I, of course, are loving the John Oliver show, which was fantastic. There's there's this wonderful like Venn diagram uh, this year and last year where the Charlie Brooker's The Weekly Wipe comes back and overlaps you know, at yes. approximately the same yes. time as John Oliver. And yeah. it's like being in super witty news heaven, basically. I was uh, super happy to see that Weekly Wipe is coming back for an election special as well. Oh, good. That is that is fantastic. Because you know it's the British election right now, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's oh, great. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm completely addicted to that. Yeah. I'm honestly checking out the live blog on The Guardian every day. <laughs> <laughs> losing losing far too much time on my on my brain. Mm-hmm. About the the British elections, um, movies. I am I am even worse behind than you, Jeff. I really mm-hmm. haven't seen anything in ages. But the other night, I totally watched um, Skyfall again on Netflix. Ooh! Uh, and I forgot how much I like Skyfall, even though it's at least half an hour too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I but I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and television, I am going. I'm working my way through House of Cards season three, despite the fact it has the worst season opener. Really? It has a snow burner, which is pretty much constructed to make you think, how much do I want to watch the show? <laughs> it has, it's, it's appalling, Jeff. Hmm. I am on episode seven of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was released, what, Valentine's Day around then? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because it took me maybe three weeks to get through the season opener. Because mm. mm. it's that bad. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm. terrible. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm watching. And uh, this is not new. I actually just rewatched things, but I've seen them both before, but for people in North America who still haven't seen Charlie Brooker's, uh, Black Mirror, um, everything but the Christmas special is, is up on Netflix and it is wonderful. 
Um, and actually, I've been rewatching Peep Show. So uh, okay, yeah. I was I was going to lunch into my I think Black Mirror is horrifically overrated rants, but I won't. Really, you are. Yeah. You, how I, do I put I'm, it? You you think I'm wrong? That's fine. No, 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 no. Because I actually, I, I, I think Black Mirror is horribly overrated. I think there are, I think there are at least two horrible clunkers in that show. Uh, I would say there's it. I might, I might give that to maybe you, even actually. three. Mm, okay, out of six episodes, this is here we go. These are the digressions. I, 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 I think of if you're looking for something lives up to the reputation of Black Mirror, you can pretty much skip the first two episodes altogether. Oh no, no! The you yeah. actually think the, the 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 whatever the fifty thousand credits or whatever was? Yes. Oh Jesus! I hate that so much. Oh my God! I actually I hate it so much, and also love that that is the same plot as the last episode of the second season. I, yes, exactly. I, I I thought that that was pretty remarkably I think it's funny. Really, well. really funny. It's yeah. like oh, it's the same story. Yeah. Okay. Um. I, um yeah. I I hate that episode. I, I adored that episode. I thought that it, honestly, I thought that it was, how do I think? I thought that the first 15, 20 minutes of it are, well, the first half of it, I thought were perfectly well done so that the, the twist, even though the twist is, well, there's two twists. From the get go? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. Didn't see it coming. I hate oh, to say yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I did. That, that's the thing. There, there's been, there was nothing in any of the episodes. That's not true. Apart from the, the one with the woman waking up and the screen is doing the, the weird thing and everyone's hunting her. That oh, was see, the only one where I didn't see the twist coming. Oh, would see. Okay, but see, I, okay, I don't especially care per se much about the twist. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I actually thought, I thought they, Maybe, maybe I'm just underfed when it comes to dystopic British science fiction. And, you know, you're like, please, these were all quarter mass outtakes. But, you know, <laughs> but I, I frankly thought that, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought, uh, the first one, the national anthem is quite strong. I think the second one I thought was heartbreaking. And then I forget, is the third one the, the third one is the, the Jesse uh, Armstrong review. The, it's, the, it's the one where everything you see is recorded and can be played back. I also thought that was great. I also thought that I, was really that's great. The first, that's the first one I like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, whereas I, so I, I, thought, I really oh, liked Be Right Back after that. Oh, I, uh, I, thought, I thought Be Right Back starts off fantastic, and I made the mistake of showing it to Edie, and it sort of devastated her. I thought well, it, yeah, because it's, it's emotionally devastating, Jeff. Well, sure, but I thought that way about the second episode, where you apparently were remarkably undevastated. So, honestly... Oh, no, I, yeah, I, the, the, the 50 million merits, I, I, like, I hate. I really, really, really dislike. I think it's so amazingly clumsy and simplistic, and, and yeah, yeah I really... Really hate that episode so much. That and the the um, the Waldo moment are the two episodes that are. I mean, they're almost identical, um, and I hate them so much. See, so I, much. I think. I think. I think. For me, Black Mirror has high highs, but also diminishing returns. Because I think the first season is fantastic. I think the second season, Be Right Back, is devastating for the first two thirds, and then doesn't know where to go and lands badly. I think. Um, I the think Wal- the same. The same is true of the Walter moment. The Walter moment, like the end of the Walter moment, yeah. is hilariously like, oh, did this, did this just end? 
Did you yeah. not have an ending for this story? Right. Well, no, because the ending is is that end credit sequence, which is which is unsatisfying, you know. But uh, honestly, I thought I thought the only real clunkers were the Waldo moment and White Bear. I thought White Bear was was clunky as hell. Um, yeah, no, I, like White Bear is once they do the twist, mm-hmm. the twist is really clunky. Yeah, but everything up to that, I'm I. I did not know where it was going, and I was like, okay, I'm actually involved in this, as opposed to 50 million merits, which I just... Yes. Oh, Jeff, cannot So people who were keeping... People keeping track at home, Jeff is the good person you should listen to, Graham is the bad person. (laughs) I I think that's fair. I think think that's fair. Uh, (laughs) You know what it reminds me of more than anything? It made me wish that I could watch Jam again. Did Jam ever come out here? Let's let's say it didn't. Although, again, my t- depending on what era oh, it came you, out, it you might know have. that I love Chris Morris. Yes, right. The satirist who did um, Brass Eye and Brass Eye, and he then made a series Nathan called Barley Jam. with um... yeah Nathan Barley, yeah, mm-hmm. with Charlie Brooker. Mm-hmm. Um, in between Brass Eye and Nathan Barley, mm-hmm. um, he made a show called Jam. Which mm-hmm. is based on a radio show called Blue Jam. Unless I'm mixing them up in the show, the radio show is called Jam, the TV show is called Blue Jam, but I don't think so. And it was a sketch show that was just odd. <laughs> like a sketch show without any obvious jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, that I just keep wanting Black Mirror to be jam. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to explain. I, I, in every, almost every respect, every time I was watching Black Mirror, I was like, this would be so much better if it was, you know, seven minutes long and not, how long are these episodes? An hour? I, You know, I want to oh, say they're closer to an hour. Time. Some of them always felt like half hour, but that's because I was so absorbed and emotionally ab- uh, involved, they flew right by, Graham. So, wow. again... If you're How much the... are you getting paid for advertising <laughs> Black Mirror? So, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, if you're in the UK, you will agree with Graham. For people in North I, I, America no, who are like everyone me... Loves, everyone loves Black Mirror, Jeff. I, people in the UK will agree with you. Yeah. People in America will also agree with you. No, no one will agree with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how long the episodes are on the internet. Come on, internet. No, I think so they are. They're like 45, 50 minutes. Except I swear they're half an hour. Anyway, while Graham looks this up, and because we're running a bit out of time, I'm yeah, going to jump to Chris we've, Beckett. We've yeah. Only, yeah, we've only got five more questions. Let's do this super quickly. Yeah, uh, while somehow still giving people their due. Chris Beckett asks, with the upcoming Daredevil series on Netflix, what DD comics would you recommend outside of Frank Miller's work? Chris himself says, personally, I love the Nocenti John Romita Jr. run, which was my proper introduction to the character. I feel this explains a lot about Chris Beckett. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, It depends what you're asking. Are you asking what would set you up for the series? Or are you asking what what are the best Daredevil series? Uh, If you're asking what would set you up for the series, you're looking at Miller and Bendis. and, And fairly, like, you're done. That's and, all you need. Well, honestly, I uh, thought Bru- apparently I liked Brubaker's stuff more than you did. Although, no, no, no I, I'm I'm trying to think of what I can say here, Jeff. Mm-hmm. If oh, you're you... looking for stuff to read for the series, oh, I see. You only need ben- <laughs> Bendis and Miller's work. Wink, wink. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, if you're looking for other stuff that is good, uh, sure, Brubaker's in there. Uh, the Mark Wade run. 
is mm-hmm. is in there. Um, but yeah, Nishanti. I would, I would definitely put the Nishanti and, and Ramita run in there. Yeah, n- n- it really depends because it is sort of. I have to admit, Chris. Part of me is like, oh, I read that. Is like, what would you suggest for someone? Yeah, watching the upcoming Daredevil series or into the upcoming Daredevil series, who wants more stuff like that? And I and honestly, it's it's interesting because I feel like there's a variety of stuff that tried ripping Miller's style for a long time and was... Oh, oh yes, for everything after Miller, with the exception of Nishanti, up until Wade. Yeah, yeah, although I felt like Chichester was doing some weird, tried to bring it in weird stuff, and remember Carl Kessel had some bits in there that That's were... That's true, Carl, Carl Kessel tried to do Wade, like, mm-hmm. decades ago. Yeah, exactly, before Wade does, and wasn't able to pull it off. So there's there's a little bit of everything in there. So, not really sure where the question is. Of course, I love Nishanti and John Romita Jr. There's stuff that I wish they were reprinting that was the San Francisco, quote unquote, the San Francisco era where it's Conway and then it leads into Steve Gerber's stuff because Steve Gerber's stuff is so fucking strange. I mean, honestly, people talk about how strange and Nocenti and John Romita Jr. stuff is, but let's not forget that Steve Gerber had a villain called the Mandrill with the face of the baboon whose sex pheromones allowed him to control every woman essentially on the planet and he ends up taking over the entire United States until he and Daredevil fight it up fight fight each other to the death on top of the White House. Hard to really beat the what the fuck factor. Yeah. Hard hard to move on from that. So let's go to Roger Roger Winston. Yes. <laughs> um what are your feelings about TC's announcement? in quotes, that they are no longer going to be slaves to continuity, assuming you believe it. Apologies if you've already covered this in the podcast and I forgot. We didn't, actually. Um, I'm interested in how important continuity is to you and if that has changed over the years. I know that in my younger days, I was quite insistent that everything matched up, but these days I don't care as much. How important is it to a company's reputation, for lack of a better term, that they're consistent with what they've established or are trying to establish? Well, I'm going to say that my... My take pretty much follows Rogers. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, sure, everything yes. had to line up. Like, what? What is this? How could Wolverine be in you know in New York in this book, and yet he's you know in San Francisco in this book? What? Uh, and now, I honestly don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that the big comic companies don't care either. I think an unremarked upon effect of Hawkeye is. The, the fact that readers will respond to a take whether or not it fits in with continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great point. So, well, actually, so there's two things about continuity that I, I should mention. Also, I think, I think for a lot of us, I think continuity is a big thing that matters way back when. Um, there was a piece that I wrote Honestly, I think it was for one of went back over the Savage Creek website when all of us were trying to talk about God help us like fear itself or something. And for me, I honestly believe that continuity works best for comic book companies in the first 20 to 25 years that they're doing it, you know, and then after that, it begins to collapse under its own weight and everything becomes unpalatable and how you handle that. I think is you have a couple of different options. You know, DC decided to do the, we're going to hit the reboot button every certain number of years. And Marvel decided to do the, we're just going to ignore it. And by continuity, I mean more of the sense of like this happened and then this happened. And it's established that, 
you know, if Wolverine's allergic to, to radio waves or something like that, you can't, you, you know, you've got to play that out. And I always appreciated the way that I came into comics in a very continuity heavy period where, um, you know, if one person wrote the Visions character this way, someone was going, if you wanted to change that, you could, but you had to come up with reasons. You had to acknowledge it. Yes. So it felt yes. like one sort of long, continuous story, one that might seem insane and absurd and, um, you know, like, like the world's best drawn uh, version of Exquisite Corpse, but at least there, you know? Um and there's a way in which, honestly, I feel that those things aren't palatable, you know, and uh, after once you cross a certain number of years, it just becomes impossible. And so what your choices are, I feel that DC's reboot has the pleasant effects, although maybe a long term diminishing returns of you can set the ground anew, you can start having things happen, but then the, um, essentially the writers and the creators have a little bit of, um, leeway of like, you bring back something from the previous era and it has more resonance than it might otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. On the other hand, I also think there's a lot to be said for Marvel's like, we ignore it, then we bring it, it, you know, bring in something and you can kind of feel like you found a little Easter egg because you're like, oh my God, they actually, you know, remember Anger the Screamer or whatever, you know. Uh, but ultimately, uh, oh, and the other aspect of continuity is that idea that everyone all exists in the same universe. And honestly, that aspect of continuity, I'm not sure ever really... I, I probably mattered to me a lot in the kid as a kid, like, Oh my God, the Avengers and defenders are meeting or, Oh my God, the X-Men or whatever. But honestly, that mattered more to me at a very quick point because at the point in the seventies, um, with minor peripheral characters, like we just talked about daredevil, uh, Marvelman introduced a character district attorney tower that was in daredevil in like the mid one thirties or something like that. And, and meanwhile, there was like, the tough cop, God, what's his name? Rafe, Raphael. Oh, I can't remember. I have, but he, I have no idea. But uh, Rafe Scarf, you know, who kind of like Colleen uh, Wing and Misty Knight were characters that he would sort of, you know, he would throw into his other titles. So suddenly, you know, Misty Knight is Jean Grey's roommate, you know, and that's. I, I kind of adored that. Those are the I, I adored that in the minor characters when it came to the bigger characters and it turned out that I don't know, Spider Man looks out the window and he sees Thor and Thor is in the middle of flying off to whatever. It that didn't matter as much to me. It clearly meant a lot to people when it first launched. Um But yeah, I think unfortunately that it's pretty important to a company's reputation that they say that they're consistent in whichever approach that they're choosing, whether or not they're actually consistent. I think, I think at a certain point you either, you know, you either learn to ignore it or you, you know, GTFO, you know? So that, that's kind of my take on it. Wow. I'd just like to add to that. First of all, Jeff clearly cares about continuity much more than I do. Secondly, <laughs> it was very important to 10-year-old me when all the Marvel superheroes teamed up for Secret Wars. Like, 
that was incredibly exciting. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I totally get that. Um, and we, I, I was, I, I, yeah. I, I was, was going to say, and also, different. I'm very excited that um, you just said GTFO. <laughs> Daniel Mackay says, this is going to be the fastest one. Um, what do you think of the original Batman TV series? And should the Batman vs. Superman film, sorry, Batman v Superman film, be a spiritual sequel to that series? I think we all want their fights to be Batman whips out a bad Superman repellent spray. Jeff's answer, because he's written this in, is literally yes, yes, and yes. I agree. <laughs> Moving on. Daniel Billings asks, <laughs> not sure if anyone has asked this before, but a friend gave me a bunch of his 1970s comics, which included Welcome Back Cotter comics, and made me think about recent non-animated sitcoms and if they, they would make decent comics. Any jump out at you? Who would write and draw them? Again, Jeff wrote a long, a really long response to this that I'm going to let him to, uh, discuss, and then I'm going to add my two cents. Jeffrey? I actually think the time is better for non-animated sitcoms for to be comics now than ever, because shows like con- Community, for example, are so similar to comics in terms of continuity and actual physical wackiness and hijinks that I think they'd make a great fit. Like, looking at stuff like Cotter, Welcome Back Cotter, uh, you know, it was never, it's not really visual, um, I think. And I think there are problems with the idea now, like the comics industry back, even when Welcome Back Cotter was sort of toward the tail end of this breed, like DC did stuff like a, a remarkably long run of a Jerry Lewis comic and, you know, TV shows got their um, comic book in part because it was the comic industry was seasonal. You'd never have to worry about Welcome Back Cotter being collected into a trade paperback and having to sell it, you know, a year or two years after that when the show could be off the air. So I think that could be a concern now. Like, I think people would be like community, like why? Or, um, you know, something like Friends, which is such an old example, or Mike and Molly, like a lot of stuff that's super, super popular, is I think maybe not exactly particularly visually interesting. I wouldn't have wanted to see two and a half men, the comic, I think, you know, and I don't think that that would have been really interesting per se for anyone. On the other hand, something like big bang theory, I'm kind of shocked that it's not had some sort of dip in the toes of being an actual comic, considering the crossover with comics that it has. And it's been on for a long time and is so nerd friendly. Um, that I, I really am shocked considering that it's a Warner Brothers show. Like it really says something about th- the fact that it doesn't exist in comics that I just think either someone's being really cowardly or being really, really greedy. But, um, but you know, but honestly, apart from Big Bang Theory, something like New Girl or Unspeakable Kimmy Schmidt or Brooklyn Nine-Nine or any of that stuff, honestly, I would love to see someone like, I don't know, fucking Oni, like, license that and get a cartoonist that could do those characters a certain amount of justice, um, you know, but also be loose enough and appealing enough to actually read as comic. Um, so, Graham? And I disagree. Nice. Um, here's why, Jeff. Mm-hmm. I am, as you know, I'm a big fan of Thrilling Adventure. Yes. 
Thrilling Adventure is crossing over to comics. Oh, that's uh, right. Image mm-hmm. has launched uh, the Sparks Nevada comic already. They're launching uh, Beyond Belief next mm-hmm. month, I think. Um, and they just don't work as comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it really reinforced because it's the same writers mm-hmm. for both. For the, right. for the live show and for the comic. Mm-hmm. And what it really reinforced to me is how much of these things, and not just the only adventure, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or, or Community or uh, New Girl, are, it's not the writing, it's the performances. Yes. So you you have none of that right. in a comic book. Yeah. You're entirely relying on the writing mm-hmm. and the cartoonist. And, but the cartoonist is also going to be a disappointment because it's not, it's never going to be the, it's never going to be the actual actors. Right. And so you're lacking, you're just starting from such a place of, uh, of, you know, way back where you're starting with such a handicap mm-hmm. that it, it just seems like a losing battle. I, I think, I think the reason we don't have a welcome back order today is that someone somewhere online realized it's not a good idea. Like mm-hmm. when the show exists, then everyone's going to want the show. Right. Well, you get things like Buffy season whatever the hell it is now, season yes. 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because it shows off the air. Mm-hmm. I think doing something like a Friends is much more likely than doing a new girl. Mm-hmm. Because the people who still want Friends well, will, but will, I think, will buy it. I think there is actually something to be said for dramatic shows have the story and oh, the sure. performances. Oh, no, sure. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So I think Whereas that's comedy a good thing. Only mm-hmm. has, comedy ultimately only has the performances. The performances. There's there's very little forward movement. Part of why I thought a community is community did tease a certain degree of uh, forward movement. But, you know, honestly, and this is a good point. The, are you watching the new episodes? No, no, no. And I know that from reading the critiques that this is, in fact, sort of part of the problem with with the show at that point, in fact, too, I think. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, also something that I totally overlooked that that became apparent while Graham was talking, which is ironic because I was talking about exactly this very thing this morning with my wife, is back when Welcome Back, Cotter was coming out, there was n- no VCRs, you know? There yeah. were... I mean, there was never. What's that? Yeah. You have Netflix now. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? like, mm-hmm. Friends is, friend, people were talking about Friends again this year like it was new. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there, there's just that level of, th- th- there was a need. And in fact, IDW sort of talked about it in the back of one of John Byrne's first uh, Star Trek photo novels, talking about how the photo novel was a thing that came out that bombed in part because it came out like within three months of the first VCR and suddenly episodes, you could see episodes uh, everywhere. Like before the, the Star Trek episode photo guide seemed like a great idea for those Trek fans, because unless you were watching it in syndication, you weren't watching it. There was no way to watch it. And now it is the realm of everything all the time available forever. And so consequently it does seem like, after everything that I said, I'm like, oh, right, that's why it won't work. Like, the only way it would work is if there was something where comics were able, you were able to crank out comics faster than, like, let's say, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt could do a second season. And people were so crazy about it, and the people who created Kimmy Schmidt were such a huge fans of comics, the medium, that you could have that sort of deal happen. Yeah. 
but but other than other than just something fingernail slight like that, I think Graham's absolutely right. I have to I have to recant my windy answer, um, and it, it it was a very things were so substantially different in those times with entertainment that I I almost forget. Martin Gray asks the final question of the episodes, and can I just say? Thank you very much, Patreon people, because you gave us exactly the right number of questions for this episode. Um, <laughs> it's the final. It's the final question, and we're at two and a half hours. I'm going to start going weird soon. Yes, um, that's right. Oh shit! Here's the question: If DC and Marvel were waffle toppings, what would they be? And a very, very detailed answer, Jeff. My my very detailed answer <coughs> is: Marvel is butter, syrup, berries, and powdered sugar. But every four months, the butter is milked from a new animal. The type of berries are so shocking, they can't tell you what they are until after you've ordered them. They will not bring you more syrup, so they encourage you to order as much syrup in advance as possible, and they occasionally switch the powdered sugar out for salt. By contrast, DC is castor oil, because that's what people put waffles on back in the 30s, but now they've been making the castor oil maple-flavored after seeing the success that Marvel had with it. Oh, and they also have chocolate chips. Because Batman. I will steal Jeff's answers for the Marvel and then say DC is whatever Marvel was doing two years earlier. <laughs> so the thing that's sad is I wrote that answer and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so great. I can't wait to hear Graham laugh about it. And then, of course, because you read it or I read alternately it. because it's not funny. I was like, no, I read it. People, thank you very much. And we also said when we did the Patreon uh, that we would thank you on air if after a certain amount of time, if you've given a certain amount of money. And we didn't do that either. Jeff, again, disagrees with me because there were certain time limits put in there for certain levels. Nonetheless, I'm going to run through a lot of names right now. But I'm we just also did this. people. Didn't we do? Or did we, I mean, no, we, really, we did. Okay. We genuinely did. You're okay. right. But please run but through. I'm going to ground zero it right now. Yeah. You ready? Yes. Andrew Bear, J.D. Smith, Christoph Peterson, Chris Tanfran, Terence Strass, Neil Caput, Lawrence Cruz, Carlos, uh, Carlos Aguilar, Paul Holmes, David Brown, Roy Rogers, Timothy Reifenberg, Leif Smith, Scott Ashworth, Stephen Williamson, Jeff Lang, John Kipling, Martin Gray, Robert, I'm going to say your name wrong and I'm really sorry, Gretch, Dan Billings, Dan Turner, for Thomas, Derek Moreland, Max Brown, Leighton Connor, Stephen Andrews, Eric Phipps, Al Ewing, Chris Jerzombic, I, again, have real problems with your name, Chris. I'm really sorry. Heath Edwards, Steve Wang, uh, Daniel Mackay, Jason Hopkins, Sean McTiernan, Eric Roop, Roger Winston, Doug Alton, Jesse Morgan, Stephen Prince, Justin Harmon, Alden Barroza, Carla Hoffman. Carla! Don't start doing the okay. shout-outs. We'll be here no, all night. No, Carla gets a special league just because she's Carla and she's awesome. Love Come Carla. on. Yeah. Uh, Matt Terrell. Matt! Dominic Soria, John Copeland, Patrick Gaffney, Rick Vance, Mark Bender, Matt Diggs, Matthew Johnson, Cassandra Sherman, Matt Miller, Chris Beckett, Ryan Watkins, Charles Forsman, Adam P. Nave, who we have to thank on many levels, Corey Dvorkin, uh, Andrew, sorry, Anthony Casaldi, uh, Ryan Fitzgerald, Luke Stacks, Brian Ruckley, Chris Bentley, someone whose name is either Ryan Mary or Mary Ryan, because your email flips it over and I wasn't sure which was which, Jose Manera, uh, Thomas Martin, Rick ba- Rich Barrett, Andrew Foley, Brendan O'Hare, who I hope enjoyed the Blur concerts, Gar Berner, Adam Polakoff, Dylan Todd, Jacob Shemkovitz, and Jamal Thomas. Thank you Yay. all. I'm sorry if I ruined your names. Yes. And I hopefully, I can say if I did that it was me. 
Yes, which is wonderful. Um, thank you, all of you. And also thank you to the patrons that um, uh, supported us at the no reward level. You guys are also super great and incredibly appreciated. Really, we're just we're grateful for all of you and for the opportunity to do this. I have to say, I really enjoyed this episode, despite all of my muling and whining about it. Um, <laughs> See, I also want to say, so I, I've said before, patreon.com forward slash podcast. Where we are right now is we have 99 patrons. Yes. <laughs> Give us the next link. We'll be our 100th patron. I have said this to Jeff in email and didn't get a response, but I don't know if we're going to do anything special for the 100th patron or not. You mean for are the we? 100th patron or yes. for everyone for the 100th patron? For either. I, it would be more fair to do it for everyone. Right. See, that's my thing is like uh, the hundredth person is just the, you know, the person who was slower than 99 other people, you know, it's true. We should give we should have given the first adult or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure Uh, something out. We will figure something out. Yeah. Well, uh, we're we're going to try and be better about this. Maybe we'll do more question and answer podcasts. Who knows? Well, this was pretty fun, Um, but yeah, I I just I yes, yes, Graham. Yes, nine nine months in in building Cape. That's that's really what happened. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Graham started to buzz, so we are going to go. (laughs) (laughs) Beelzebub, Almighty Lord of the Flies, would you like to sing us out? That didn't work at all. Bye! (laughs) Perfect. 